Digital Gonzo, episode 156, recorded Saturday, 9th of November, 2013, Thor, The Dark World. After all this time, now you come to visit me, brother. Why? To mock. I need your help. But I wish I could trust you. If you did, you'd be the fool I always took you for. Some believe that before the universe, there was nothing. They're wrong. There was darkness, and it has survived. What's gonna happen? I gave you my word. I would return for you. Face an enemy. Not only to a few. Known only to one. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. If we do nothing, they will destroy us. You even think about betraying him. I'll kill you. That was from New York. I like her. Thor, your bravery will not ease your pain. Your family, your world will be extinguished. We're running out of time. The very fabric of reality will be torn apart. I'll find a way to save us all. Welcome back to Avengers Phase 2, a slight team reshuffle due to some members unable to see Thor 2 in time for this recording means that tonight I am joined by Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir. Joining Jerome is David Merritt, staff writer for Gonzo Planet. Hello. And finally, enlisting to air her thoughts on the Marvel Cinematic Universe for the first time, it's Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. Since this film is a lot less divisive, a lot more straightforward and a lot simpler than Iron Man 3, this one is likely to be a more friendly, protracted chat about the way the Marvel films have been proceeding and where they're heading. Obviously, major spoilers for this film, as well as the preceding seven movies in the official canon. Thor The Dark World begins with the following MacGuffin of a plot, designed purely to give Thor and Loki something to do. Eons ago, Thor 
father of Odin clashed with the dark elf Malekith, who sought to destroy the universe using a weapon known as the Aether. After conquering Malekith's forces, including the enhanced warriors, the Cursed, on their home planet of Svarthelm, Bor contains the Aether within a stone column. Unbeknownst to him, but knownst to us, Malekith, his Lieutenant Algrim, and a handful of Dark Elves escape into suspended animation. In the present day, the Aether is rediscovered and threatens to engulf the universe in darkness. Unless Thor saves the day. He does. About Malekith's... <laughs> about Malekith's motivation. Eccleston said... There is a kind of a tragic quality to his quest because he's lost his wife, he's lost his children, he's lost everything and he returns for revenge. And the agent for his revenge is the ether. If he gets hold of that, he is omnipotent. Eccleston continued, What I thought about a great deal was revenge. There's huge amounts of revenge. One quote is, When you seek revenge, be sure to dig two graves. I did a film called Revenge's Tragedy where I played a guy called Vindici from the word vindictive and he is the distillation of revenge. So in a way, that was what I had to think about, how revenge can make you absolutely monomaniacal. Though if you're still trying to make it recognisably movie-led, it's just the personification of movie evil. Eccleston said the role required six hours of makeup and 45 minutes of wardrobe. Now, fair play to Eccleston, he's an excellent actor. And do you guys, have you all seen 28 Days Later? Yes. 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 And yes. Shallow Grave? Yes. No. Yeah. Oh, you haven't seen Shadow Grave? Well, okay. Um, Shadow Grave, Jerome, uh, Eccleston portrays uh, a man who starts off as uh, somewhat bookish and nerdy and ends up insane. And it's terrifying. That's one of the few films that genuinely disturbed me. Uh, so Eccleston is more than capable of uh, portraying someone who's absolutely electric. I know many people who still didn't know it was Christopher Eccleston by the time the film finished. I didn't. Me either. You had to tell me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, several people have mentioned this, and I think the, the film's key failing, if anything, is that the the actual villain is not a villain at all. It's just stuff to do. It's He just sort of turns up and goes, right, I am the villain. I'm trying to wipe out all light in the universe and blah, 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 blah. We'll go into that definitely later, but uh, I just wanted to sort of, to, to, to lay down the key weakness of this film to start with and then we'll just go into a bit more um, detail. Now I really actually quite like the film in the pockets of emotion that I found in it and those we will also go into in detail I'm, I'm, uh, First impressions David, Jerome and Sharon uh, Start with David I uh, loved it Cool. Any more? Oh uh, sorry I, thought, um, I, I, I really enjoyed it uh, I actually I was really consciously aware of its flaws, mm-hmm. but at the time, while I was in the cinema, I just didn't care because I totally rolled along with it, partly because of the humour and mm-hmm. partly because I didn't actually need the villain to be well-developed. Yeah. It, because I, I I found the the concept of the Dark Elves kind of powerful enough for it just to work as that, that their whole universe has kind of changed, like, nothing just the presence of light feels like an affront to them so that felt like enough if you're going to have a one note we are the big bad guys they Hmm. seem quite a good so can uh, they just like see in the dark do they do they not need light at all to survive well i didn't dig deep i just exactly (laughs) i mean i had all these questions about them it's like oh they're they're really not going to go into it are they no 
But I thought they came across well in their design. They were sort of bug-like, as if they would be sort of able to see... Sort of, they had these very big eyes and the masks, as mm. if they were trying to hide themselves from the light. And I did like the masks. They reminded me of the Immortals in 300. Mm. Very creepy. Yeah, I mean, Although they did occasionally, especially when they were running around London, and especially with the presence of Christopher Eccleston, remind me of Doctor Who baddies. <laughs> <laughs> like the BBC also, could whip them up fairly quickly. Also, in the end fight, they seem really rubbish. But in the preceding fight in Asgard, they're sort of dropping Asgardians like yeah, flies. But when, when the humans are in danger, they sort of fumble. They, they just they become the vamps in the background in the end sequence of From Dust Till Dawn that just run around going, nyah, 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 not actually attacking anyone. Yeah, they didn't throw any of those cool grenades at, at the people at Earth. Yeah, good point. Um, Jerome? Very similar to Dave. I loved it. Cool. I was I got caught up in the moment during the cinema, and I loved the humour. And we'll go into this later, but I love what they did with Loki throughout this. Oh yeah, mm. me too. As for the um, whole ether thing, I recognised it as a sort of MacGuffin, but I liked how they sort of worked out to bring in Malekith and the Dark Elves and that whole confrontation. Sharon, um, well, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, and like Dave and Jerome, it was basically a case of I, I could identify that there was stuff about it that would I probably wouldn't like if I thought too hard about it. Um, but it is very rare that I can sit in front of something and just enjoy it on a popcorn basis. And I was actually physically sat there with a big bag of popcorn, just that's true, that's a chomping and chomping. That's that's a new. You went out for me. more popcorn. I did. <laughs> <laughs> We were we were at uh, the uh, Kinema in the Woods, that place we mentioned before, where we saw Man of Steel and uh, what was the other one? Iron Man Three, uh, which has incredible booming sound and uh, really at this point really annoying interval, where like straight after um, spoiler alert, folks, straight after Frigga had uh, had her funeral, and we were going, oh god, and then like we saw what that was beginning to do to locate went. <laughs> I will say this about all good music in the cinema it's very atmospheric but it can kill the moment it really can it really does however Sharon however yeah going going back to my first impressions of the film I mean when it started up and you had sort of these these uh, dark elves bad guys one of the things that really struck me at that point was although um much has been said of the fact that um thor unlike a lot of other marvel heroes is supposedly kind of a fantasy type hero mm-hmm. but the way he's been set up in this avengers crossover universe is when it gets down to brass tacks he's an alien he is a very long-lived extremely well-shaped humanoid style alien um and one of the things that struck me was that although they were calling them dark elves that basically underlined all that for me that these were other alien races that the asgardians also interacted with who lived on other planets or in other worlds that they reached uh via the the wormholes that the um uh Bifrost. What's it called? Bifrost, thank you. Um, Open the up for them. That's it. I was <laughs> reciting yeah. a line in my head going, what's the word at the end? Um, the Rainbow Road. They are very, very similar to the elves in Hellboy 2. 
The makeup is very similar. Their motivations are very similar. In fact, about 10 minutes into it, I was sat there thinking, if they trot a golden army out at this point. Yeah, but Hellboy 2 had the wonderful texture to it. I actually cared about uh, Nuada. He he was a great antagonist. And he was, you know, not quite on the level of Loki, but he was definitely approaching it. So it's almost like, had Loki not been there, they might have thought about fleshing out Malekith. A little bit more, but because Loki was there, it was like, oh, I don't need to worry about him. You don't want to take the spotlight off Loki too much. Yeah. Don't have two shades of grey villains. <laughs> That'll just confuse everybody. But I mean, I have to admit, in hand in hand with the fact that I didn't realise until after we'd finished watching that it was Chris, uh, Christopher Eccleston, a lot of the, it would appear, the finer points of his um, motivation completely sailed by me. Race of people who don't like the Asgardians. That was basically what it came down to. The thing about his wife and child, I didn't know that until I read about uh, it. I was like, hang on a second, that didn't enter into it. It reminded me of, you remember Nero in Star Trek? Yes. Exactly yeah. the same goddamn motivations. My planet's been destroyed, I've got a blah, 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 blah. And destroy Starfleet Academy. <laughs> Pretty much. Actually, that that leads us to the uh, first of our uh, points of view. So, um... So, Darth Wingo asks... What exactly are the Nine Realms? Are the planets at the centre of these supposed to be the only inhabited planets? Or are they more like the central waypoints for nine different sectors of the galaxy? They're obviously not different dimensions, as Mjolnir... Sorry, I wanted to go Mjolnir. Yeah, meow. Uh, as as uh, Mjolnir started travelling through space to get to Thor. Perhaps thinking of them as fast travel points in a much larger universe is the best way. That sounds yeah. logical. Yeah, I think it's more like a... Because it's the... It's Idrisil that the tree's called. Yggdrasil, yeah. yes. Essentially, they're those... It's sort of like pockets of the universe, and they're connected by that, rather than separate dimensions. I've gone to the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki. The nine realms are the, the nine main worlds of the Milky Way interconnected through the world tree Yggdrasil. Muspelheim, home of the fire demons, ruled by Surtur. He's a major, like, Satanish type guy. Yeah. Not as Satanish as, um, what's his name? I want to say Satan. Mustafa. No, the other one. Uh, <laughs> what's the... What's the uh, Marvel Satan again? Mephistopheles? No. Oh, Mephisto. 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 Yeah, he turns up in Ghost Rider. Uh, Alfheim, home of the Light Elves. Vanheim, home of the Vanir, who are the sister race of the Asgardians of the Trolls. Asgard, home of the Asgardians, will be Odin. Midgard, the Earthly Realm, home of the humans. Jotunheim, home of the Frost Giants, will by Laufe. Not anymore, it isn't. Niflhelm, home of the Frost Trolls, not to be confused with Frost Giants, will by Ymir. Svarthelm, home of the Dark Elves, ruled by Malekith, and not anymore. And Helmheim, realm of the dead, ruled by Hela. You don't want to go there. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that is all uh, intermingled with actual Norse mythology. Uh, but from the sounds of it, if you want to take it as 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 very specific, um, it is simply nine planets, the only nine actual inhabited planets within which. However. It's the Marvel Universe, so you also have tons of other places that are out there. Guardians of the Galaxy go to all different kinds of worlds that are nothing to do with Norse mythology. There's the Shi'ar Empire. That, that's why I like to think of it. They're literally just, they're connected by... 
Yeah, the there is some life. force that connects these ones, but not the others. Well, if you think about it, although to the Asgardians, Yggdrasil is is what their uh, what their mythology, if you like, is built around. These are mm. the gateways that they can use to get to these places. Um, that could simply be that that's all they know, and because all of these uh, nine branches that they have access to kind of converge on Earth, um, that's somewhere that all the beings from these planets could feasibly have gone to and that's where Norse mythology could have sprung from that that these beings all visited at some point people saw them or even you know glimpsed them through through their own portals or other means and created their mythology about those um those creatures but if it all kind of converged around that time um then that would kind of make sense that humans wrote stories about the things that they saw through these mystical doors the beings on those planets focus on the nine planets that they can get to because why would it occur to them to to investigate places they can't get to easily hmm. i mean uh they even said so in the move that essentially the dark elves were around before the guardians and everything so essentially i th- did i think did they say it was even before the tree of life it still was actually established and that's part of the well, it's before, it. I think Odin says something at the beginning about before the universe there was darkness and that was when the elves ruled. So there's this kind of biblical, you know, what was there before the beginning. And uh, this kind of way of like, put, you know, belligerently denying that cycles exist. Mm. Yeah, I think also, it's literally, um, uh, it's just sort of like the Asgardians not acknowledging things that came before them. It was just yeah. like, it was all darkness. There was no life before. We I was came. boring. I mean, honestly, it was just like, there was nothing going on. And then suddenly we turned up. Whereas we're pretty <laughs> You're sure welcome. that imagine if they met Galactus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is basically the Asgardian equivalent of insisting that the world is six and a half thousand years old. And we work that out by adding up the ages of everybody in the mystical scroll. Cannot overemphasize the importance of cycles. Okay, so uh, I've got a bunch of your tweets here and posts regarding what you guys thought about the film. And since we all seem to be in accordance that it's great fun, not brilliant, but great fun, uh, this will be all of the points of contention because there was a lot of people who were not thrilled by this movie. Ben says, Disappointed. Had so much to cover and I think it just failed to achieve what they wanted to. Sad face. Mm. <laughs> Pup Sway says, I enjoyed it. Felt like it kept up the forward momentum post-Avengers. Got massive Flash Gordon vibes from the aesthetics. (laughs) What they were missing was the American football game in the middle. (laughs) Evan Fowler says... Having liked the first one, this was a major improvement. Did think Anthony Hopkins' attitude change was off, but still solid. It was a weird transition from him being the wise leader to a balls-to-the-wall warmonger. Also, significantly less unnecessary Dutch angles. How about that ship design? Friggin' beautifully intimidating. No pun intended. Uh, we will talk about uh, Zeus's sudden turnaround later on, but it, it does seem... Oh, dude. <laughs> dude, Freud. <laughs> give you a well, clue. no, not really. They're the same guy. <laughs> we'll um, talk about God's uh, anger about that later. The Greek mythology also exists in the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, Hercules is there, mate of yeah, Thor. and Zeus does exist. Of course. Not to be confused with the Batman's Maxi-Zeus. Yeah. Uh, so who's is next? also a mini-Zeus? Never, ever try to be funny again in my presence, Percy. Oh, fine, I won't. <laughs> Dylan D'Souza says, I really enjoyed it. 
good balance of fantasy and comic bookness. It was hilarious too. Loved that there was a whole lot of Asgard. Earth seems so boring compared to Asgard. They should scrap Earth completely. A whole planet. Um, they've tried. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. How many times have they etched sketched us? See, the first thought I remember saying that I far preferred the Earth stuff to uh, the um, Asgard stuff because that's where all the character growth happens. But um, now that I think about it, most of the character growth happens off-world in this one. Mm-hmm. I think they were quite conscious about that fact this time. Mm. Well, Thor was only really on Earth for about 12 minutes. Ryoma says, Thor 2 is amazing. It's on my top three Marvel movies, including Avengers. Sam says, I enjoyed it. Like that we got more of Asgard and its characters. And the romance subplot wasn't distracting like in Thor. Mind you, I do like Jane Foster, though. <laughs> I wish Malekith would have had more lines. Felt like we could have done with more of him. Uh, I've already voiced my uh, views on the uh, fact that I find the uh, romantic subplot in the original Thor not distracting, but actually quite sweet. But, uh, yeah, fair enough, Sam. Not everyone would have felt that. I think it's the weakest part of the whole Thor films so far. I happen to know for a fact that Natalie Portman is not massively thrilled about playing Jane Foster. Uh, uh, yeah. They're not doing a lot with the character. I have to admit... She is a bit of a flag in this She is a bit of a flag. That was one of the things I said about this. In the first film, it was great. She had stuff to do. She had her own shit going down. Um, You know, she was organising things, and and that was fine. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, now she has this stuff within her, which, did did anybody else think that is patently dark matter or antimatter? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Really is. Why don't you become really heavy? Yeah, you would think. You you? seem to have increased in mass, Jane. What are you implying? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, then it was like, you know, somebody picks her up and takes her over here, then somebody else picks her up and takes her over there. She gets (laughs) a MacGuffin stuck in her, and then she gets sent elsewhere. (laughs) They try to get the MacGuffin out, the MacGuffin gets taken out, she gets put back to Earth, and then she has a brilliant brainwave on how to fix the planet. It's just, I do find it really annoying when a relationship in uh, in a film, and it's it's usually action films that fall down this hole, can be referred to as a subplot. Yeah. It's, if that, I mean, you look at the relationship between Thor and Loki, that relationship is front and centre, that is absolutely Mm. key to the story. I don't understand why they can't write romantic relationships that are also key to the story and key to character growth and obviously they can because uh tony and pepper yeah and also jane is thor's key to the the earth she's his reason for wanting to protect us so you'd think that they'd want to validate that significantly more in this second one I think Where, that, in the original trailer it was like, what would you give? And Jane was sort of being held up and, and, and stuff was coming out. It was like, oh my God, Jane might actually die in this one. Oh no, she doesn't. She's fine. Lauren says, I actually got to see it yesterday, but I can't muster much of an opinion. The Loki Thor interplay was great, but so much felt rushed and glossed over. The portal sticks at the end were particularly odd in that there was nearly no explanation on what was going on. The whole movie felt more like setting up reasons for massive set pieces. And the second stinger with the giant ice puppy was ridiculous. That thing nearly killed the Warriors 3 in the first movie, and here it is running about the UK. It was good, though, just not great. IMHO. Jameis Enright says, Hopefully you'll touch on the... Here's the checklist from the first movie we need to call back to in the second. 
because it felt like there was a lot of that for me. I I, I, I disagree. There was uh, I mean, there were recurring characters. But it's a sequel. That's going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't and expect an entirely new list of characters and concepts and setups and scenarios. Uh, isn't that part of the fun of the Marvel sort of interweaving of the franchises so that you can sort of, oh, look, there's S.H.I.E.L.D. characters in this. And and I was certainly glad for the, I forget what the hilarious female supporting character is. Darcy. Called. Darcy, Darcy that's, yeah. that's it. All of her jokes were sort of pretty much callbacks to the first film and they they really kind of put me on side of the film and I was like, oh, I don't really care that the Dark Elves aren't explained. She's being funny. Yeah. Um, when she called out meow meow, it was uh, that was yeah. a joyful moment. Yeah, the whole the whole cinema sort of they didn't burst out laughing, but they all chuckled. Hi, um, could we get some wine, please? Sure, I'd love some. Richard, this is Darcy. What are you doing here? Okay. Oh, oh, hello. So, I show up to work at the lab slash your mom's house, fully expecting you to be moping around in your pajamas, eating ice cream, and obsessing about <clears throat> you know who. Uh, but you're not. You're wearing lady clothes. You haven't showered, didn't you? You smell good. Is there a point to all this? Because there really needs to be a point to all this. Right. You know that scientific equipment you don't look at anymore? You might want to start looking at it again. Ooh. This is the reason we came all the way out here. It's malfunctioning. That's what I said. That's what I did. I thought you do something a little more scientific. Sure, it's nothing. Yeah. Doesn't look like nothing. Kind of looks like the readings that Eric was rambling about. Our friend Eric kind of want banana balls. He's not um, interested. I'm interested. I'm not interested. It's time for you to go now. Okay. Short but sweet. She needs help. You can look at it as a checklist, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because uh, I think it's more than just the checklist. I think that essentially comes down to whether or not the movie resonated with you particularly. Because if it didn't, then obviously you can see that here's all these things that echo stuff that went on in the first film and in the Marvel Universe as a whole. If they don't resonate with you, it just looks like a box-ticking exercise. But if they do, then you like the fact that they're doing that because it mm. harks back to all the things that you've enjoyed before. I, I mean, you can link that point to what Lauren said about the whole movie being like setting up reasons for massive set pieces because if you're not if you kind of aren't with the film then you'll look look at it and go oh right this is just for so they can do a cool uh action scene where they're all teleporting to different worlds and it's all going a bit cg mm. but if you're enjoying it then it's then you feel like that's the kind of the central hook of the narrative sort of coming alive in that action scene yeah. um that did make me smile that bit. Some of the uh, some of the action really did uh, what did feel a bit tedious at times, but uh, I can see how people who weren't invested with the Marvel Cinematic Universe would just be like another Marvel film. They're all the same now, uh, but this it feels like something more of an ongoing series that we're getting installments on. The dear. I think some, someone made the comparison last week of it being like the Bond series and the Bond franchise, which I don't think is too far off. Mm. And technically, they're, they're a lot more versatile because uh, although Bond has changed over the ages to uh, reflect the uh, world around him, the Marvel movies do tend to be kind of significantly different from each other year in, year out. 
in terms of the, the Thor world is very different from the Iron Man world. That's possibly why some people haven't responded quite so positively to this one, because it was so different before. And by bringing the action down to earth, literally, you're you're putting it in the same environment. I mean, obviously, they, they've switched to the UK, so it's not just we're trashing New York again. Yeah. Um, but, it, it, you know, we're not that different. It, it's, it still looks pretty much the same. There's still cars getting thrown about. Although, oh, what, this is one thing I noticed, and it made me chuckle every time I see it. Did you notice anything strange about the license plates on all the cars? What did I say? They were ancient. Ooh. They were all really old license plates because the only way that you can put license plates that will look real on TV in this country, I don't know about America, um, but um, you have to use ones that have been withdrawn. Ah, okay. Because otherwise, you you either you make up a random sequence of letters, um, or you have to replicate a license plate which may be real and in use, which you can't mm. do without permission from the person who owns it. See, I always just assume that they just bought a whole bunch of cars to destroy. And that would have been my first assumption, yeah. except for the fact that Darcy's Volvo was immaculate, and it had an ancient license plate on it. Also, they did manage to get around London with a relative speed without getting stuck in an incredibly long, slow-moving centipede of traffic in the daytime. Um, quick question. Yeah. Now that they've destroyed um, New York and done London. serious damage to London, which next major city do you think they're going to do next? Well, they did a bit of LA on the freeway in Iron Man. Um, oh, you're right, though. I say Paris. I was just going to say, they're going to stick something on top of the Eiffel Tower, aren't they? Captain America goes to France. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they'd let him in. Expecting it to be very noir and everything, but nothing is expected. See, that's the thing. In the Bond films, he gets to go to different countries all the time. But in this, they have to destroy different countries all the time. So by, or just different areas. So like by the, the 15th, uh, of, uh, Marvel cinematic film, they'll be destroying Baltimore. Lucas the Yeti says. Though I don't really remember much of it. That is also my opinion of the first Thor and of Iron Man 3. I hope Winter Soldier can rise above just being okay. The one thing Thor did do brilliantly was get me even more excited for Guardians of the Galaxy. That's my number two most anticipated movie of 2014. Actually, let's talk about the uh, sign-off here at this point. Did uh, did you guys all go, ooh, Guardians of the Galaxy? Or what? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything else? I, I'm, I'm not as up on my Marvel knowledge, um, uh, which was why I was probably very quiet when you were talking about the uh, different Marvel gods that were outside of this film. Niffel, <laughs> Bubelhelm. <laughs> Exactly. Is that the world where all the boobies are. Klaffelhelm. Piffelhelm. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, but I, is going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, are we talking about the bit with Benicio del Toro and the, the Infinity Stones? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, pretty much after every Marvel film, I go to my I go to my friend Mark and say, "So what did that mean?" And he says, "Oh, well, that was Thanos. He's this guy." And I, and then he then. Uh, and then I feel informed for a moment until I forget it all again. <laughs> <laughs> See, I have to admit, I saw that bit and I thought, ooh, what are they doing in Beetlejuice's guidance office? Yes, yeah, that re- totally reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, ooh, this looks a lot 
more Star Warsy than I thought it was going to. Like prequel Star Warsy. I, I don't know. It's, it's actually made me a little bit, a little bit less excited for Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a damn shame because I wasn't massively excited to begin with. But, um, I mean, I, I, I'm still cautiously optimistic, which is my new catchphrase. Um, but for me, the main reason I'm looking, for, really looking forward to Guardians of the Galaxy is because they're, they're a set of Marvel that I know very little to nothing about. Mm. So the fact that even though I, I know what the Infinity Stones are and everything, but I don't know who the collectors, it, collectors yeah. are, it was just the fact that, okay, they're leading into Guardians of the Galaxy sort of thing. Well, if you look at the coders from the past um, Marvel films, back in... Let's just go backwards, shall we? Um, we'll the, start from the beginning. The no, no, start from the beginning. Iron Man 1, you get Nick Fury at the end, and that's like, oh, my God! And that, that was like a... Like, I wonder if we can actually put this together thing. They did that as an afterthought, almost. Same with uh, Incredible Hulk. They were like, well, maybe we just get Robert in this mm-hmm. film, and then there's this cross-pollination thing. And that's like, oh, my God! And then um, Iron Man 2, at the end of that one, Thor's hammer. Oh, my God. End of Thor. Loki's still alive. Eric Selvig, the Tesseract. Oh, my God. Stuff's happening. Really leading towards the Avengers now. End of Captain America. He punches the sandbag. And then it's like, we're going to set up the Avengers. Here's a little tiny mini trailer coming next year. Oh, my God. End of the Avengers. Thanos. Oh, my God. End of Iron Man 3. Oh, Banner, awesome. Oh, okay, I could probably have done with more of him. And then this is like, I guess that's something to do with Guardians of the Galaxy. Which is a lot less, oh my god, than it has been so far. I, I just I, I thought, wow, okay, he's going to say something really significant now, but he went, one down, five to go. I was like, that seems like it'll take a lot of movies. <laughs> uh, what happens at the end of these five? I don't know, man. Maybe Thanos will have all five things and there'll be a gauntlet, like Avengers 3. So, yeah, it's probably about right, actually. Uh, by the way, that uh, scene was directed by James Gunn, uh, director of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, so it's like a, a snippet of that film. Same way as the bit with Captain America at the end of um, Captain America was actually from the Avengers, directed by Joss Whedon, as was the bit from Thor. Raul Zayas says... Though it had its flaws, I really enjoyed it, more than the first one. Glad to see supporting characters get more screen time. A personal complaint is I'm not a fan of the sci-fi and fantasy merge. At times the film comes off as too Star Wars-like. You're really not going to like Guardians of the Galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things I love about Thor. It's that culmination of fantasy Mm sci-fi. That's a whole concept I always enjoy. It's the fact that... They've, they've got their, instead of coming up with scientific names of things, they stuck with folklore names of everything. Hmm. It was at once, this seems a bit wishy-washy, it was at once thrilling and slightly disappointing to see spaceships zooming about the place and, and shooting up the city, because it's like, wow, they have spaceships? Of course they have spaceships, they're in space. Okay, well, I guess it's going to be one of them then. I actually uh, watched a bit of the Chronicles of Riddick this uh, today, uh, just to sort of reacquaint myself with it, because I, I kept thinking while I was watching it, it's a bit like the Chronicles of Riddick, since the Dark Elves are basically the Necromongers, and I, I even compared the um, costume and set design to a more colourful version of Chronicles uh, when we did the original Thor. But Chronicles of Riddick is horrible. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible, boring, boring film. Everybody speaks in that kind of cool way, where they only ever say cool things to each other, and when I say cool, I mean like cool to a 14-year-old boy. 
um, like like that version of cool. So you know, to an adult, it's actually not at all cool, and it doesn't actually. It's, it seems hollow and written by a child. And Riddick keeps holding. Like for the first twenty minutes or so, I was watching it with Lyra. Riddick holds a knife to the throat of three people, and it's like, could, could you stop doing that? I mean, I know you're like a total badass. But, uh, you know, just, like, minimize the amount of knife-to-the-throat moments. Just just to make it more of a threat when it actually really needs to happen. Anyway, uh, we'll probably do the Chronicles of Riddick when we do the, the Riddick trilogy at some point. But I'm not looking forward to it. I, I know Neil will be there talking in its favor. Is is it worth doing the Riddick trilogy? I mean, that's... I love Pitch I, Black. It depends... I, basically, yeah, it depends. Uh, I'll watch Riddick, and if that's rubbish, I'll just do Pitch Black. Uh, the only reason I'm mentioning it here is because I was... When the action bored me in this film, I thought of Chronicles. But now that I've seen a bit more of Chronicles, I've gone, ah, you know what? The thing that's different about this is I care about the characters in Thor. Most of them, actually. Most of the named characters I care a bit about, even the Warriors 3. I don't care about Ian. anyone in Chronicles of Riddick, even Riddick. Okay. Matt Wetter says... I think I liked it even less than Man of Steel, and I really didn't like Man of Steel. I'll start by... Uh, he's written quite a lot on the forum, but I'll just bring it, boil it down. I'll start by saying that I really enjoyed the first film, probably my second favourite Phase 1 film behind Captain America, but for some reason I wasn't particularly psyched up for the sequel. Usually when I'm not excited for a film, I'm pleasantly surprised. But this was a sad exception. It goes as follows. And then he basically just does what Matt Wetter does, which is to sort of sum up the film in blow by blow. Uh, so, But the two that I specifically pulled out were number one, preamble on the Dark Elves who want to do something never really clear what, with this CGI blood from Blade. And number four was sci-fi fantasy trope number 64,885 the planets are aligning. Yep, it's a plot point. I feel I should point out now how utterly forgettable and uncharismatic the bad guy is at this point. I was amazed when I found out it was Christopher Eccleston. I'm sorry to say I was bored out of my mind throughout the whole thing. Character growth equals zero. Everyone leaves the film exactly the same as when they entered it. The only interesting thing that I got from it came at the end when Loki assumes the throne, at which point I start to wonder whether everything, and I do mean everything, has gone according to plan. And Chris says, this film is full of great jokes. How do I get to Greenwich? That's how you spell Greenwich, by the way. Greenwich. Uh, however, why did they miss out this joke for the restaurant? Darcy hands Jane a device. It's malfunctioning. Richard. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, Jen, I'm going to go off and be in 4-2. Can I come with you? I was expecting that joke when she came in with the device. Yeah. Maybe because we were expecting it, they didn't do the obvious one. Although, interestingly, I, I think Jane and Selvig both try percussive... Uh, what's the word? Percussive... Percussive maintenance. Hitting it. Ha! Amateur mistake. Chris also says, does anyone else think that Odin is a bit of a dick? Yes. I mean, Loki even says that Odin has killed more people than he has. Not only that, but he doesn't seem to care that Bor, his dad, killed all the Dark Elves. When asked how they were stopped, he doesn't sigh heavily and say, he killed them, all of them, in a somber, regretful tone. He says it in a straight, almost proud tone. He killed them all, bitch! This isn't the same as with the Frost Giants, when Odin led a counter-invasion to stop their reign of terror. This was genocide. Admittedly, Malekith was the one who actually committed the act, but Odin doesn't mention this at all. Could Loki have been king of Asgard? 
Loki was saved by Odin and at a young age was told he was to be in the running to be king. There is one of two theories. One, Loki was indeed in the running, but as they grew up, Thor became the obvious choice instead of Loki due to his more honourable nature and massive pectoral muscles. In short, Loki lost the race because he wanted to win too much. I hope it's this one. And number two, Loki was not in the running and his father just told him to keep his identity secret. I hope this isn't the case. Why? Because it makes Odin even more of a jerk, and an idiotic one at that. If Loki was never in the running because of being a frost giant, just tell him what you did when he was like ten. Just say, your biological father abandoned you, but he is not your true father because I love you and you are my son. Loki probably would have been grateful. This leads me to another point. Why was Loki raised in Thor's shadow? It is obvious that he was raised as the second son, the one who gets the least attention, the one, the odd one. Why? Loki, if raised as Thor's equal, could have been an honourable and wise individual, while Thor is honourable and powerful. Thor could have been the protector of the Nine Realms, and he's obviously the better warrior, while Loki ruled Asgard. A joint rule, if you will, playing to both sons' strength. Instead, what did Odin do? He glorified Thor his entire life for like two, three thousand years, and then wondered why Thor was arrogant and Loki was resentful. Odin is an idiot. Why did Malekith want the Dark Universe? My theory is the following. The Dark Elves reigned supreme over the entire universe when it was in shadow. Then, the first stars appeared and the universe began to fill with light. As such, they lost their power and their rule crumbled. After millions of years of suffering during the last convergence, they tried to restore their lost civilization and failed. This wasn't really explained too well in the film, and overall I came away with it feeling that Malekith was more just an antagonist rather than a villain. To elaborate, an antagonist is someone who tries to stop the hero. A villain is someone who has twisted motivations and therefore does bad things. Almost all villains are antagonists in stories, but not all antagonists are villains. For me, a villain is a complex character with mixed emotions who isn't just concerned about his or her plan. Or if they are, this fixation is shown to impact upon their personality in other areas, e.g. their interactions with other characters. This is why I believe that Malekith is more of an antagonist rather than a villain, as he essentially is shown to just want vengeance and all the Dark Elves are with him and all the Asgardians are against him. Therefore, for me personally, there is another character who is more of a villain despite only being a minor antagonist. Odin. In the film, his efforts do at times try to stop the protagonist, Thor, from achieving his goals, i.e. forbidding him to leave Asgard with Jane. However, he has complex motivations, and these motivations affect how he interacts with other characters as well as his personality outright. Some of these motivations are, as discussed before, pretty twisted in my view. As such, I would argue that Odin may be almost as much of a villain as Loki. See, it's interesting here, because I think it's the other... For me, it's the other way around. If you're a villain you're less of a, a, a deep character. Most villains tend to be pretty one-dimensional. And if you have multiple layers of, of reasoning, you're more of an antagonist. For me, antagonist is a badge of pride, whereas villain is kind of a sort of a, you could be in a Saturday morning cartoon. In a way, Odin has been glorified as this wise leader, but perhaps he's a much more complicated character than we thought. I mean, he's been known to banish his own son, and he basically disowned his other, although he was adopted. I mean, I know he was angry, but who says you were supposed to die to his adoptive son? Not, I saved you from dying, so you should be more grateful, but you were supposed to. By extension, Odin is basically saying, I wish I had left you to die as a baby. That's horrible. I don't think he was saying that. I think I think he was basically saying, look, you're feeling like you're linked to these people, the Frost Giants. Just forget that. They don't care. 
there's better for you, and it's right here. Oh, wait, <laughs> wait. Wasn't Loki trying to commit genocide on the Frost Giants in, Lo- in Thor 1? Yeah. Possibly as a result of you left me to die. Now, that's, I see that more as... Um, he's, that's how... If you see how Odin talks about the fight with the Dark Elves and everything, mm. it seems like he's very much the... If, if, if a race becomes a threat, the Asgardians commit genocide sort of thing. Because that's essentially what Odin sort of glorifies, it seems. Uh, a threat, though? A threat to what? To Harmony? To the Asgardians? All of the above. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the reason that a villain tends to be um, a bit more one-dimensional is because of the fact that they have these twisted motivations um, are very rarely more than one or at the most two layered um, Mm. because the second you start introducing actual human motivations to things i.e. this is not only what this person wants to do but here are the reasons why they want to do it um, and particularly if you can uh, if you have anything that sees back into their history and shows uh, where those motivations have come from you start to understand a little bit of, of why they feel that way and why they want to achieve those things and therefore once you start to empathize with them you can't really continue to portray them as an out and out villain because it it's, it, you're not meant to, um, uh, the, you know, the villain is supposed to be the epitome of evil. It's, it's the thing that you're supposed to, the, the straw man that you set up to throw tomatoes at. You, the reason that Loki is such an appealing character, it, as far as I can see, is that we've got layer on layer on layer of why he behaves the way he does, and it's portrayed so effortlessly brilliantly by Tom Hiddleston. He is really amazing, I have to say. He's the the best thing about the Thor films for me, hands down. Um, but you can, you've seen everything of his life from his beginnings as a, a, you know, a foundling that's been abandoned and expected to die to, uh, snippets of the childhood that he had in his brother's shadow, um, to the coming of age and realizing that all the things that he'd been told he might be able to achieve if he just ticked all the right boxes and behaved in all the right ways was actually never going to happen. And then it's like, well, it's no bloody wonder he acts the way he does with all that building up behind him it's it's all totally understandable um you know even when he does pull these double agent twisted uh fake outs constantly to the point where i really wasn't entirely sure which way it was going to jump which i, I just liked. love gold indie i, I liked <laughs> the fact that it took me by surprise you know that that, that it had the potential to um you know to to fool me, even if briefly. This is the third time you've played this character now in three years? Uh, yes, yeah, we, we shot Kenneth Branagh's Thor in 2010, Avengers in 2011, Thor The Dark World in 2012, and then they all came out a year after that. So when you show up to shoot this movie for the third time, is it? do you feel like you're just stepping into a pair of shoes that you know so well? Do you feel like you might even know the character... Better than the screenwriters or the the director? I'm, I know him pretty well. <laughs> um, and uh, there is I, what I've been very grateful for is you know the producers, the director, the writers have always have actually deferred to myself and to Chris Hemsworth and and said you know does this feel right and um, because uh, 
you know, a, a director and a writer's engagement with a character is an intellectual mm-hmm. one. Of course, there is an emotional engagement, but I've lived inside him twice. And it, 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 to some extent, it's like meeting an old friend. But at the same time, um, and I hope I speak for Chris here too, or I mean, I sort of know I do, is that the thing that, that we really were <clears throat> kind of, we, we cautioned against was repeating ourselves. It's like, what's the point coming back doing the same mm-hmm. thing? We've got to find a new way of bringing these characters together, giving them a new dynamic, giving them a new, um, a new, uh, iteration, if you will. Loki is insanely popular, and you as Loki is insanely popular. I was at Comic-Con when the crowd went crazy, right. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, you knew when you were joining Marvel, like, okay, I'm going to be really well-known, it's, yeah. it's a great publicity sort of, you know, sort of way to grow my career, but did you, you must not have ever expected this sort of... No way. No, complete surprise. Above and beyond any realistic expectations. Yeah. Um, the, the, the moment, I suppose, it, it landed... You know, the surprise kind of hit me like a train was, um, was sort of in the wake of Avengers was, mm. was starting to understand that somehow something about the character in that film just took flight in, in, in the imagination of the audiences. And then Comic Con was, I, I, did, I did not expect that. I mean, I expected some, I, it, I expected it would be fun and there would be some kind yeah, yeah. of interesting engagement with the audience, but that level of, that wall of sound, if you were there, you oh, know, yeah. exactly it was. how loud it was. It was interesting and, and very, very, um, uh, flattering and fun. The opportunity of doing the Avengers, I mean, you must have hoped it would help your career in many ways, but have the offers to do projects and other stuff really like, Change since the success of the Avengers, say more than Thor. I don't know. The, the, I suppose the uh, the interest from a sort of business standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I try not to think about it because I think it becomes it pollutes your the integrity of the, of your work. So you don't um, believe in the one for them, one for me. Uh, I, I understand why people would make that distinction. Yeah. But I worry that I I worry that if I if if I made that distinction that, that I would it would just affect the quality of the work. If you're thinking I'm just doing this for them, I think audiences are so smart they can smell that. Um, and so I suppose the difference that Avengers has made is, is and it's a nice thing, is that it's a relief when, um, when financiers are, are not uh, deterred by my, by my attachment. When it can help get, like, only lovers left alive or something. Exactly. Like. It's that basically my attachment to the film and how financially successful it was is, is, is something that can open, that it's just not a barrier anymore. Because once upon a time, guess what? It was. You know, yeah. I started acting in this city, in London, when I left uh, drama school in 2005, and I performed in a play above a pub in Clapham <laughs> to one man and his dog, and I would audition for films, and my agents and casting directors would say, look, Tom gave a great audition, the finances need to cast someone who's who's more of a financial sort of yeah. thing. So so that's great. And then, but I, I have no idea, man. I feel like I'm just at the beginning, to be honest. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank Love you. Love the performance. Tom Hiddleston wrote this rather fantastic article for The Guardian in April 2012, shortly before the release of The Avengers. This is one of the reasons I love Hiddleston. Not just that he plays this role with such gusto, but he really gets this universe and the mythology behind it. <clears throat> 
Earlier this year, beneath the wind-whipped tarpaulin of a catering tent in Gloucestershire, I was working on a film with the actor Malcolm Sinclair. Over scrambled eggs, at an ungodly hour, he told me something I had not previously known. When Christopher Reeve was young, barely out of Juilliard, he was roundly mocked by his peers on Broadway for accepting the role of Superman. It was considered an ignoble thing for a classical actor to do. This article is entitled, Superhero Movies Like The Avengers Should Not Be Scorned. I grew up watching Superman. As a child, when I first learned to dive into a swimming pool, I wasn't diving. I was flying. Like Superman. I used to dream of rescuing a girl I had a crush on, my Lois Lane, from a playground bully, General Zod. Reeve, to my mind, was the first real superhero. Since then, some of the greatest actors have turned superheroes into a serious business. Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson in Batman, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, the first venerable knights of the X-Men who have now passed the baton to Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy. In spite of 20 years of mercurial work on the likes of Chaplin and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, it was rock star charismatic yet somehow humble Tony Stark in Iron Man that helped wider audiences finally embrace the enormous talent of Robert Downey Jr. And Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight quite simply changed the game. He raised the bar, not just for actors in superhero films, but young actors everywhere. For me, his performance was dark, anarchic, dizzying, free, and totally thrillingly dangerous. Actors in any capacity, artists of any stripe, are inspired by their curiosity, by their desire to explore all quarters of life, in light and in dark, and reflect what they find in their work. Artists instinctively want to reflect humanity, their own and each other's, in all its intermittent virtue and vitality, frailty and fallibility. I've never been more inspired than when I watched Harold Pinter speak in a direct address to camera in his Nobel lecture in 2005. Truth in drama is forever elusive. You never quite find it, but the search for it is compulsive. The search is clearly what drives the endeavour. The search is your task. More often than not, you stumble upon the truth in the dark, colliding with it, or just glimpsing an image or a shape which seems to correspond with the truth, often without realising that you've done so. But the real truth is that there never is any such thing as one truth to be found in dramatic art. There are many. These truths challenge each other, recoil from each other, reflect each other, ignore each other, tease each other, are blind to each other. Sometimes you feel you have the truth of a moment in your hand and then it slips through your fingers and is lost. Big talk for someone in a silly superhero film, I hear you say. But superhero films offer a shared, faithless, modern mythology through which these truths can be explored. In our increasingly secular society, with so many disparate gods and different faiths, superhero films present a unique canvas upon which our shared hopes, dreams and apocalyptic nightmares can be projected and played out. Ancient societies had anthropomorphic gods, a huge pantheon expanding into centuries of dynastic drama, fathers and sons, martyred heroes, star-crossed lovers and the death of kings, stories that taught us of the danger of hubris and the primacy of humility. It's the everyday stuff of every man's life, and we love it. It sounds cliched, but superheroes can be lonely, vain, arrogant and proud. Often they overcome these human frailties for the greater good. The possibility of redemption is right around the corner, but we have to earn it. The Hulk. It's a perfect metaphor for our fear of anger, its destructive consequences, its consuming fire. There's not a soul on this earth who hasn't wanted to... Hulk! Smash! 
something in their lives. And when the heat of rage cools, all that we are left with is shame and regret. Bruce Banner, the Hulk's humble alter ego, is as appalled by his anger as we are. That other superhero, Bruce, Wayne, is the superhero Hamlet, a brooding soul misunderstood alone forever, condemned to avenge the unjust murder of his parents. Captain America is a poster boy for martial heroism in military combat, the natural leader, the war hero. Spider-Man is the eternal adolescent, Peter Parker's arachnid counterpart, an embodiment of his best-kept secret, his independent thought and power. Superhero movies also represent the pinnacle of cinema as motion picture. I'd like to think that the Lumiere brothers would thrill at the cat-and-mouse chase through the netherworld streets of Gotham in the Dark Knight, with helicopters tripping on high tensile wires and falling from the sky in a huge, joker-driven, triple-length truck upending 180 degrees like a Russian acrobat. I hope that they would cheer and delight the roller coaster ride through the skies of Manhattan at the end of the Avengers. These scenes are the result of a creative engine set in motion when the Lumiere shot La Ravie du Train en Gare de la Cotate in 1895. The trains just move a lot faster these days. And not just trains, trucks, bikes, Batmobiles and men in flying, shining iron suits. The spectacle is part of the fun, part of the art, part of our shared joy. How far, I hope, we have come since the judgment of Christopher Reeves' peers. Maybe playing superheroes isn't such an ignoble undertaking after all now. I still believe in heroes, says Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury in Avengers. So do I, sir. So do I. So yeah, I mean, I read that uh, last year when uh, before I saw the Avengers, and I should have included it on the Avengers show, but I think I was just too busy gushing about everything that was in that film. <laughs> Sharon and I have been watching all seven previous Marvel films uh, in the run up to these, and um, Avengers just gets better every time I watch it. It's now at the point where when I finish, I want to start again straight away it's rare that a movie does that to me certainly it's rare that a movie does that on an increasing scale rather than a decreasing scale and I do hear people on the internet saying I don't you know the more I watch Avengers the more I think yeah it wasn't all that and I feel so sorry for them because I would hate to not have this So these are my thoughts on Thor The Dark World. For me, pretty much everything in this film chugs along with competence and style. I like being in the world, I like these characters, the quieter scenes in Asgard were conducted with more dignity and less self-consciousness than the first Thor, which often felt a little stagey. 
And that's saying something, considering how competent Kenneth Branagh was in that film. The Earthbound scenes were fun and quirky, with Jane, Eric and Darcy once again insignificant mosquitoes peering out into the great swathe of our universe. I was, however, bored often to drowsiness by the action sequences, which now look like most action sequences look. Thanks to Transformers and a handful of others, there is a certain series of rote movements that are applied to far too much action these days. They often involve slow camera pans with something big and swirly and techno-organic spiralling through the air to be met by the hero in an almighty mid-air blitz. In the same way as my brain switched off during the denouement in Iron Man 2 and 3 and most of the action in Captain America and the Jotunheim sequence in the original Thor, if it doesn't affect the characters on a deeply personal level, then the action is just distraction. This is brilliantly realised in Avengers when they've spent 90 minutes and indeed the five previous movies building up character with fantastic dialogue, personal interactions and ideology clashes but delivered in most other movies always devoid of significance. It's just leaden to observe. Thor 2 gives us just a few too many moments where something big and jaw-dropping and eye-popping is supposed to be happening, but in which I just kind of found myself looking forward to the time when they were going to start talking again. Now, it could be because the Dark Elves threat is just some stuff happening. The usual end-of-all-creation malarkey. That's all it is now. It's the end-of-all-creation Malaki, the thing that's going to kill us all. Also, Eccleston's key villain, Malaketh, is but a pale smudge when compared with Hiddleston's Loki, not even possessing the characterization of the suspiciously similar Nero in Star Trek. Think back to the clashes in Galmera and on the LA freeway in Iron Man, the emergence of the Hulk all three times in The Incredible Hulk, Thor's sacrifice to the Destroyer and the triumphant combining of powers in The Avengers... Those are when action and character development really come to the fore and make these movies something else entirely, putting them leagues ahead of the generic action fair out there. Because you also get Steve's struggle to be a soldier in the first Avenger, his desperation to live up to the noble sacrifices of his parents, Tony's quiet, unspoken conflict with his father, Betty reaching out to Bruce in his crushing isolation, Thor bringing the universe to life for Jane, all these things that make you care are the core of these stories. These were all present and correct in Thor The Dark World, but I can tell I will watch this in the future waiting for that second half, because the moments between Loki and Thor are what I really care about in this story, and they did not disappoint, crackling with resentment and guarded, bruised egos. The true business end of this comes on the Dark World itself, where Thor and Loki finally join forces, and Thor is forced to witness his brother's death so soon after their mother. His roar of despair could have been so much louder and more desperate, but it is fitting that a warrior so set on nobly fighting on should allow himself such a brief and muted moment of utter regret. Loki and Thor are notably by far the best things to come off this branch of Marvel's world tree. In many ways, like Downey's Tony Stark and Paltrow's Pepper Potts, and in fact, now that I think about it, Ruffalo's Bruce Banner, Evans' Steve Rogers as well. They took the basic character outlined for years, decades, on the comic page and brought them into the world with such vibrant, palpable style, such memorable finesse, that their pen and ink counterparts seem like mere blueprints. Hemsworth and Hiddleston are to be commended. Thor could have been a dull, lumbering white knight. Instead, he is a brooding conflicted and Shakespearean presence. 
Once again, he double-hands science and magic. At the end, he literally leaps through the air with a technological spear in one hand and an enchanted hammer in the other. The machine does we don't know what, and Mjolnir works we don't know how. And Thor dwells in between them, encapsulating both theological and extraterrestrial life once again. Somewhat fascinatingly, his choice at the end is both similar and in opposition to Tony at the end of Iron Man 3. Tony hangs up his arc reactor and discards his suits in a deliberate move to narrow his focus to Pepper and a more detached form of philanthropy, closing out a trilogy and suggesting an ending of a sort. Thor steps out of Asgard and commits to defending Earth as a warrior rather than as a king from afar, narrowing his scope from all the nine realms to just one, but fully introducing him as a heroic avenger for the future of mankind. It is the rebirth for both of them, with ominous portent of upcoming strife being handled in different and subtle ways. Now, Loki could have been a cackling, scheming Skeletor. Instead, he is one of the most deep and fascinatingly flawed characters in all of super mythology. As Malaketh says, he lacks conviction. He is still angry at Laufey, the frost giant, and his father for abandoning him as a baby, even though he killed this man in the first Thor. That resentment cannot be undone so easily. He is furious at being lied to for so many centuries, to the point where he outright rejects the truth, and becomes the most untrustworthy character in the Nine Realms, not even confronting the truth himself. This is why he lacks conviction. He's furious with Odin for venerating Thor all their long lifetime, desperate for a signifier of true pride in his adopted father, but knowing he will never measure up and cannot atone for his sins. This regret, of course, exacerbating the conflict within and further diminishing his conviction. He loved his mother, the trickster. I don't know if you guys tied this one together, but basically Thor is Odin and Loki is Frigga the one who uses the illusions, the slippery one. And there is, of course, debate as to whether she should mean anything to him at all, being not of any true blood. But we know he cares for both Thor and Odin, and the telling moment signifying the depth of his love for Frigga comes not when he flings his furniture around in a rage, but the crumpled ruin of a man that remains in his cell, his bare feet cut, bleeding, and unattended after stomping the chairs into matchwood. While he lies to Thor and everyone else, we can see the truth in Hiddleston's eyes, in his performance. Here is a man with true understanding and relish for a character. Loki has gone from son of a troll to pretend prince to duplicitous kingslayer. He has lied to, trapped and murdered his brother, attempted the destruction of an entire planet, then the conquering of another. And in all of these scenarios, he has been trapped by his own actions. In Avengers, he speaks of the illusion of freedom to the human race, yet every new pact he makes or plan he hatches draws him into another binding circle. He is always beholden to someone or some system and afraid of someone. He's afraid of Odin. He's afraid of Thor. He's afraid of the Chaturi. He's afraid of Thanos. He's afraid of Nick Fury. Afraid of the Avengers. Definitely afraid of the Hulk. And here in this film at the end, when his plan comes to fruition, whether it be long-term or, as I suspect, improvised, he's backed himself into a corner, disguised as his own father and now forced to maintain that illusion. Better to live the lie than face the truth. Loki has no home, no friends, no future. He's betrayed and lost his family. He has only what he can orchestrate for himself at any given moment. 
and it seems like he doesn't know what he really wants. To him, there is no freedom, so he may as well control what he is able to. He tried his hand at Asgard, and then Earth. Only the heads at Marvel know what he is attempting to control right now, and it's possible not even Loki truly comprehends. I have never cared about an antagonist so much. One of the things that I think Thor 2 does very well is solve a problem that I have with a lot of superhero films and action films in general, which is the third act, everything goes crazy and it's just a massive rook kind yeah. of thing. And even Avengers is guilty of this. All of the enemies that you come in, you don't have any basis for what their abilities are. There's the big dragon things. It, anything it ends happens, in a phantom menace way, and even Joss Whedon doesn't like that. Yeah, it, it, and it's whenever it cuts to the characters doing something, it suddenly comes alive. But when it's just stuff going on, you know, <laughs> I totally know what you mean. When you mean when the tip of the Chrysler building's being knocked off? Yeah, just. Tra- trailer shot stuff yeah. is happening in the actual film. That's a good way uh, of putting it, actually. Trailer shot stuff. And uh, you'd, on one level, Thor 2 is worse than this in any regard because you've got this antagonist that isn't really developed, but that I found compelling on, on its in a simple way. But it manages to tie the final action piece with the central concept that's been throughout the whole film so that you have a basis for what's happening. All of the effects of the convergence are seeded early on. So there are, although actually what happens is probably one of the crazier action scenes of all the Marvel films, I, I felt like I totally understood what was happening and that it all fitted. And so when it was very high spectacle that they created rather than just introducing excess elements of dragons that we'd never seen before for example that became more more thrilling for me so i ended up i I think i had the opposite reaction to the action scenes to you some of the action scenes in Asgard were uh, a bit went on were a a bit dull but the actual final act managed to ramp things up in a way that i felt was consistent with the universe of the film oh no actually the final act i didn't really have a problem with it was um it was the stuff at the beginning with, where there was there was a lot of sort of Lord of the Rings style, and then there was a great battle. And I was like, wow, this is going on for a bit. And then when they were actually fighting on the Dark World, it was like they were throwing rocks at each other, and it was um, it, it just could be filmed very cheaply in a quarry. Mm. It looked like Doctor Who again, but with lots of CGI rocks being chucked around. But yeah, no, the end the end battle was great fun when they were going back and forth through portals, and it was a nice callback to see them go through to Jotunheim and and that creature, and um, they had laid down the, uh, and in quotes here, scientific reasons for this. <laughs> and, and the whole sequence was threaded with humour as well, which um, it made me uh, enjoy it so much more because it wasn't just this big evil thing being defeated, it was this big evil thing, but here's a cutaway where you have the Darcy yeah. And her interaction, so you have this mini, slightly more comical action scene throughout throughout it. Um, some of the humour was a 
throughout the whole film was a bit broad, but it was still still fun. Nothing was as broad as Volstag stuffing himself in the first one. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was very Gimli humour. No, but the naked at Stonehenge was funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I like what they did with um, ben, ben. The fact that after everything he's gone through, he's still a bit messed up right now. Yeah, I, yeah. When they when they explained that 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 made me that really made me chuckle. I was like, well, I've had a god in my head. It's kind of it's quite mm. damaging. Yeah. And the main thing, I, I love his line of, "It's great to know that the world is crazier than you are." Yeah, because it, it seems like he he can only sort of exist in these crazy. Si- he can only function the best in these crazy sort of situations now. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. One thing I didn't quite feel, um, didn't quite hook me in was the sort of implied um, possible romance between Sif and Thor. It might have just been me, but, but it was obvious that Odin. Odin and uh oh crap, what's what's his mother's name again? Frigga. Frigga. Frigga were trying to push him towards Sif, because obviously she would be the obvious choice. <laughs> <Bodily>. <laughs> Get off. I just felt that was a bit of a weak sort of thing to throw in there because it doesn't seem like something that would ever really happen. I didn't cause... pick up on that straight away, to be honest with you, because the although it came through more when um, Jane turned up and you have Sif sort of throwing her these incredibly green-eyed glances. Mm. Um, the way she was interacting with Thor earlier on had always seemed very much one of, of equals, that they yeah. were warriors together. And when she was sort of trying to take him one to one side to talk to him, that seemed far more... Um, sort of pally, uh, you know, yeah. a, a peer trying to help you in your misery rather than somebody trying to hit on you, which mm. they then seem to imply later on. No, that that is what's happening here. Yeah. Mm. But it's not out of uh, the blue. If you, do you, you remember Hulk versus Thor? Oh, yeah, it has the cartoon. Been, yeah, it has been done is, in the comics at some points. And it would be, it would make sense over thousands of years. They're going to hook up at least once. Well, then you might have to bring in Enchantress and all that as well. I think they should. As yeah. a as a Thor character, uh, if you've ever watched Earth's Mightiest Heroes, folks will know what I'm talking about. Uh, the character of Amora, the Enchantress, is kind of, I suppose, like a female Loki. Mm. And, uh, yeah, just as tricksy and um, uh, manipulative. And I'd far rather see Thor go up against someone who can run rings around him than someone he can hit hard with a hammer. We've seen that. One of the things I thought might happen with Malekith was basically when Thor, the, the first Thor movie came out, there was an animated film called Thor Tales of Asgard. Yeah. In that Mal- Malekith, he was the last of his race and he'd been, ser- he'd been a servant this whole time. I thought they would, would have brought in that sort of thing like he's been, he's been subjugated this whole time and he's finally choos- chosen this moment to strike back. Mm. I just thought that would have been far more interesting as a motivation, sort of having to put up with this subservient nature throughout these whole years while secretly re- resenting the Asgardians. It almost seemed like they filmed a whole bunch of scenes where Malekith sort of deepened who he was and then just forgot to put them in. Mm. The movie Bob review was really interesting because it, it, he, he, he basically said it's very good, but it's missing the fat that would flesh out a lot of things and it feels quite rushed mm-hmm. um, 
one of the things I, I think about this film is that there's a lot of elements that they could have expanded on. Uh, it's one of the few, any film that I come out of and wish is longer is kind of a success in my book. Yeah. Um, I feel that there were probably several either cuts of the films or original scripts, scripts that had different focuses. Uh, I think there was probably one version of the script that had Sif and had the Chris O'Dowd character, uh, and it was a lot more about their relationships and the split between Earth and the actual conflict elsewhere, and it might have been a lot more closer in human drama. So like a, a love uh, quadrilateral. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I probably think there was another version that was much, just simply much more in-depth on Malekith. Uh, yeah. And I, I imagine that the tension that they felt is all the stuff with Loki is what makes the film sort of really come alive, and that's yeah, yeah. the most compelling part. And they maybe thought that it would bog it down if they had Malekith. They did um, mention on the uh, Wikipedia article that Joss Whedon came in at the last minute and uh, rewrote a scene with Loki because they were trying to work out how to make it work. And he delivered them the combination that they required. And it, it's obvious that Joss Whedon really gets Loki, same as Tom Hiddleston does. Mm. So having him as godfather for projects like these absolutely brilliant I think it's ultimately why I don't mind that the the villain is just a vehicle to move the relationship between Loki and Thor and mm. Loki and the rest of the characters on because in a way that's the most interesting part uh, because having Loki again do something evil would just it would degrade his character it's having him react to in a situation where there's other stuff going on and then Hatch's plans through there mm. seems much more in keeping with his character than him having, oh, I'm going to have another stab at destroying the world or something. Yeah. And not only that, he goes through the same thing Thor does regarding his mother being killed. He's absolutely yeah. wrecked by that. I mean, it, it's a film about grief, and um, which is good. That All that stuff's really well done. I, I, I was watching just sort of bits uh, on, on online, sort of making of stuff and TV spots and stuff, and, and Hiddleston was talking about his character, and they showed sort of some behind-the-scenes footage, and he was in the cell, all bedraggled and dishevelled, and he was screaming. He was just sort of his back was against the wall, and he was going, "Ah!" I don't know if that was a piece that they cut out of him just enraged, or just Tom Hiddleston getting into character. And going, this is mm. what Loki would have done. But there is so much stuff you don't get to see of him there. I, I think it Not that we should have done, but it, it just, the fact mm. that we feel like it's definitely gone on is, uh, it, it feels electric. It would have been really engaging if, if they had tied in the grief that Thor and Loki and Odin felt and then tied that in with Malekith, Malekith's yeah. grief and then made it more thematically coherent that way. And had Malekith so saying, how do you feel about the death of your uh, your mother, wife? Would you not yeah. do anything to avenge her right now? Well, now you know how I feel. Mm. Just, just top of my head. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of simple ABC, but that, I mean, I like the film because it's this fun, weird collage of different things, but that ticks along and it's got great performances and some fun action scenes but I th there is stuff in here that could make it
better. I mean, I enjoy the third act more than I enjoy the third act of the Avengers. Whoa, um, that's saying something. Just, 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 just because I like the sci-fi and the jumping around and the funniness. I mean, to, mm. I, if I was to rewatch the Avengers, I'd probably change that back. It's a, a, it's a bit like whenever I watch Reservoir Dogs, I, <laughs> whenever I watch Reservoir Dogs, I go, "Oh, that's my favorite Tarantino film." And then when I, watch <laughs> I go, "No, that's my favorite Tarantino." Whenever I watch uh, Arrested Development, now this is my favorite character in Arrested Development. No, now it's Buster. I no, have to admit, this fine. this whole time that we've been watching all the Marvel films, Alex, every time you ask me, right, what's, what order would you rank them in now? Usually, it's whatever, you just it's saw. whatever I've just seen. <laughs> Actually, thinking about Malekith, there was a bit at the end of Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, again, where um, Nawada uh, says, basically, you'll have to kill me. I cannot stop. It's, it's, it, it, but it's delivered in a way that just shows the depth of his his determination to see this through, that he cannot see any other way than pushing through with this. And it's almost like he's begging at that stage. I think that's oh, the way Loki's going, to be honest. Or, or the, as you say, he's backed himself into a corner now. Um, and even though his expression at the end of the film suggests that he thinks he's winning at the moment, mm. if you look at the way he responds to every everything that happens, he is constantly jumping from one idea to the next. He can't... It's it's actually stated at one point that, that he can't win because he has no conviction. Mm. He can't follow through on anything. He comes up with all of these incredibly convoluted, manipulative plans. But the second something goes slightly off kilter with how he envisioned it going or how he intended it to go, he will let go of the branch and jump to the next thing. And you see it in, in his, you know, the... the um, this change from, you know, this illusion to that manipulation to there are very few moments where he is out and out honest. Um, the, the scene in the cell where he's slumped against the wall, I think, personally, being one of the, the handful. Mm. Um, when he again, has to actually drop the illusion there. Yeah. But again, I think this is something that, uh, that Hiddleston gets across in a way that a lesser actor might not be able to do. Because even in those moments... You can see he's, he's basically playing somebody who's lying about a secret hidden plan. You know what I mean? There's so many, um, filters over his performance and he has to be able to do it in a way that if you're looking really carefully, you can see right through to the core of it. I know you seek vengeance as much as I do. You help me escape Asgard and I will grant it to you. Vengeance. And afterward, this cell. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. What makes you think you can trust me? I don't. But you should know that when we fought each other in the past, I did so with a glimmer of hope that my brother was still in there somewhere. That hope no longer exists to protect you. You betray me and I will kill you. We start. Chris Hemsworth as Thor definitely needs discussing here as well. Um, 
he's had, if you go way back to the beginning of the first film, he's almost unrecognizable at the end of this one to the man he was at there. He, you know, he's before he's like winking and uh, swaggering about, boasting. He's so different by the end here, and that's a good thing because he's got a proper arc in a way that even Tony Stark doesn't have this arc. Steve doesn't have this arc because he's basically the same person. He just gets more muscular. Banner, he's still on his arc, but but Thor has gone from a boy to a man. And what a man! Oh, jeez. Yeah, there was another this, moment this when is I was like, probably oh, the first God's time sake. I've actively drooled. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said, "Oh no, that you know, Chris Hemsworth, he's all right if you like that sort of thing." But that muscle-bound type. I'd never really go for that, but I, oh, four. <laughs> I hate to sound shallow, but four. Yes, but he's also very talented as well. He is. Focus on the talent, for God's sake. Indeed. Well, no, if he was, if he was fit as hell and a complete numpty and unable to act, then I don't think I'd find him quite so appealing. There, we're talking about the drama, but there is a lot of uh, yeah, a very amusing banter going back and forth, especially oh, yeah. he and Loki are together when he's trying to fly the spaceship. And uh, he's switching between soldier to transferring Thor into, into, into Sith, Sith, yeah, taking into Captain America. Oh, I quite like this. It really gets you in the room, doesn't it? <laughs> Really feel patriotic. I I love that Captain America coming out. That's the that actually is the equal. Someone said this on the uh, forum as well. The equal of uh, the uh, Wolverine appearance in X Men First Class. Yeah. Just in terms of unexpected whoa moment. I have a prediction of where Loki might be going next. Uh huh. Well, I say prediction. It might just be hope, wish, hopeful wishing, mm-hmm. and my hope fan fanness coming through. I think they're going to do the whole the storyline of Thor versus Hulk. He's going to try and take over the Hulk's body. Ooh, not the silliest of ideas, actually, because then we get a legitimate Thor versus Hulk, but with a smart Loki puppeteered Hulk. And you got to remember, he got thoroughly thrashed by Hulk. Yes, I wonder when that would occur. Would that be Thor three? Avengers 2, Avengers 3? I'd say be Phase 3. Phase 3. Okay. Remember, of course, Thor has actually fought Hulk. Yeah. Not properly, though. I'm hoping for a Hulk versus Iron Man at some stage. If we can still get bloody Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) That shit's like unicorn horn now. See, for Iron Man, because they've done this in the comics, I think they're going to have, at the end of Age of Ultron he might end up joining the Guardians of the Galaxy. Tell me to start going into space. That sort of actually makes sense with his character. Um, would be a way to overcome his um, trauma. It would. It would. And face the, uh, the great abyss of space head on. Jamie Alexander as Sif. Now I've put in, in brackets here, Wonder Woman? question mark Because I'd not really thought about this before and I've been saying... Um, Gina Carano since I saw Haywire but uh, Jamie Alexander would not be bad at all no I hope they go for a similar design as to how she's designed here yeah 
it's not a massive departure. Um, apparently, she really hurt herself uh, while filming, so we know she's a trooper. Alexander suffered a severe back injury while on the set. About the injury, she said it was raining, it was dark outside, it was like five in the morning, and I went down a metal staircase, slipped and slipped a disc in my thoracic... Thoracic? Thoracic? Thoracic. In my thoracic spine and chipped 11 of my vertebrae. I knocked my left shoulder out of place and tore my rhomboid on my right side. Took me out of filming for a month. Bloody hell. I don't know some of those words, but they sound painful. They do, don't they? Indeed. (laughs) And uh, for her to be able to come back from that and show up at the premiere in that dress, looking as stunning as she does... Yeah, she is. Uh, she could play a goddess with ease. I actually thought uh, while I was uh, halfway through this, I'm not sure if Sif's going to survive this one. I think it's going to end up being a, a love triangle with her and uh, Jane, and then uh, she's going to end up sacrificing herself to save both Thor and Jane and the human race and blah, 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 because they seem to be setting Sif up to be more of a, um, a character that you invest in and engage in. So we shall see, and if anything happens along those lines, it'll be in Thor 3. I did think they could have done more with the Warriors 3. Yeah. You mean the Warriors 5? Yeah. 6, including Heimdall. Mm. One of them literally gets dumped on another planet <laughs> yeah. at the beginning. Hogan, I love you so much. Very briefly See you later. Um, I can only assume that the actor had prior commitments that meant he couldn't be there yeah. for the bulk of filming. And yeah. There's no other reason that they would have done that, really. Or just, we got um, too many characters, let's just ditch one of them. Yeah, but that's mean. What did they do? Draw straws? I mean... It's not. Um, it's, it's a cruel business, Hollywood. <laughs> but there's nothing to do like with the Warriors you. Three. They suck. But then um, the, this the isn't the actors. They're very accomplished. It's the characters. The, the bit where they're carrying out the escape um, from um, from Asgard. They are literally like magical tokens that get cast down in front yeah. of different <laughs> groups of guards to, to you know. You go on. I'll slow them down. And about ten minutes later, you go on. I'll slow them down. I play axe warrior. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I shall be the dwarf. Yeah, did anyone? They recogni- are basically a D and D group, aren't did they? Did anyone recognise the new Fandrel? They changed him. Yep, I didn't even notice. Completely oh. different guy. Uh, it was it was Zachary Levy, um, Finn Ryder from Tangled. Oh my oh. god, Chuck himself. I recognised that it was a different guy immediately. I just couldn't quite place him, but uh, yeah, again, he's basically playing Wesley out of uh, Princess Bride. I, I like how they gave Heimdall this nice little action scene where he takes down <laughs> takes down a spaceship by himself. Fandrell's sword bothers me. I again the the battle at the beginning bothered me. It was like, look, Fandrell with his rapier should not be going up against trolls with massive axes. That just doesn't scan. It's a very good rapier. Oh, it just it's a completely different sort of fighting what is this soul caliber there is a certain amount of suspension of disbelief that comes with combining fantasy and sci-fi and there were times specifically in the earlier action sequences that my brain just went out to lunch it was like just accept it and I was like well I accept it but I'm not going to enjoy it <laughs> uh, apparently that uh, battle was shot in England hmm. makes sense well, if they were there filming all the UK sequences anyway it was uh, filmed under the uh, working title of Thursday Afternoon Thor's Day see Uh, oh my god that is clever nice (laughs) 
someone, uh, whoever a name that feels very pleased with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blue Harvest. Take that Rory's first kiss. Uh, take that The Intimidation Game. Okay, we'll stop. That's all the ones I know. <laughs> okay, right, just rewind a bit. Get, let's go to the fourth of the Warriors three. Uh, Heimdall, just nice to see a bit of uh, Idris Elba, and he took off that ridiculous hat for a change and did some did some lines, got to sit down, put down his sword, and act like a real person. And took down the spaceship. Yeah. With the oh, knife. yeah, with the knives. That was awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an action sequence that I didn't turn uh, off for because it was like he was just running up the pillar and going, let's cancel this motherfucking apocalypse. <laughs> Getting that on Monday. Can't wait. Haven't seen it yet. Looking forward to it. it Idris Elba improves anything. Yes, he yeah, really does. Pretty much. Could have done with more of him in this. Frigga, uh, Rene Russo, hardly in the first film. A lot of her scenes got cut. Kenneth Brenner had to do it. Uh, again, when they started showing a lot of scenes with her, and when she started talking to Loki, I was like, uh-oh. This, she may not be long for this world, or indeed any other. And um, a suitable uh, death scene, which had weight to it. Um, in fact, it had a similar weight to uh, to Loki's death scene, which is why that kind of... It, it, I. I I wasn't absolutely fooled by it, but I thought, you know what, if this is the case, if this is true, it's just about suitable, but it's a terrible waste of a character. For Loki, that is. But yeah, no, Frigga, and specifically her funeral was uh, was quite heartbreaking. Yeah. I have to admit, yeah, me it too, was. the funeral made it real for me, um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. They, they played about with illusion so much yeah. um, for the first, uh, the first part of the film there, that I, I kept sort of thinking, no, oh, she can't really be dead. Yeah. Apart from anything else, I really like Rene Russo. I think she's great. And yeah. it was nice to see her fight. Yeah. That, that was good. Um, and, and the fact that she, she had a plan, you know, it's, it, it, she was very much not a flag in this. She got some, you know, threats were coming. She had an idea of how to deal with <laughs> she it. She grabbed the flag. Up. She took it upstairs. She, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> She was like, this is how you do it, Jane. Take note. No, you see, this is the thing. She wasn't treating Jane as a flag at that point. She mm. was acting out of concern for Jane as a person. And it was she was Im- involving Jane in her own defense and her own protection. Um, and then, you know, for her troubles, she got killed. Yeah. But you definitely see, this is the person who taught Loki most of his life. Clearly. Mm. So obviously she has a plan at some point. Yeah. 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 But it, it did seem a great shame that just when you start to see more of her as a character, that's it. But like I said, the funeral really solidified it and, and was beautifully done. And you can also, um, the, uh, the impact of her character is felt by her absence and that impact upon and the effect upon everybody surviving her. Which is why the funeral is so key. <sighs> which Loki was unable to attend. And thus unable to grieve in proper fashion. Hence his rage. Yeah. But again, that, um, that scene where he was told what had happened, um, that, I, I mean, I've said this before, to me, a death scene, that's how you do it. You know, when you, you're showing great emotion, taking all the sound out and just giving us the visual of how people react to this. Um, can create great amounts of impact that somebody, you know, balling up their fists and looking up at the sky and going, no, just uh, can't get across. 
the point where they were on the Dark World and Loki apparently chopped off Thor's hand, again, I didn't buy it for a second, and I was thinking, Jesus, I'm, I'm wondering if they expected any of the audience to buy this one. For, for no other reason than it reduced Loki's motivations to that of a one-dimensional character. All I've ever wanted is to see you and Father dead at my feet. And it's like, whoa, he's suddenly Megatron. I can't believe they're buying this. Yeah, I bought it. Very briefly. Oh, yeah, it made me a bit cross because I because thought, what are they doing here? They're completely messing up an awesome character. Oh, no, they're not. Uh, I had something else to say about Thor himself, but I've now forgotten. Bugger. Okay. Um, and Odin. What think you of Odin? Because obviously the, um, <laughs> the, the earlier points made about him actually being more of a villain... He does completely flip around and goes from being the uh, the wise and uh, measured one to being the genocidal one. Well, See, here's, here's the thing. I don't think I would call him a villain, mm. but he's an old white-haired patriarch who thinks he knows best. Yeah. Now, that's never going to make somebody a good guy in my books. Mm-hmm. See, it's very, it's that whole issue of, it's the same thing that happens with Greek mythology and Zeus. Everybody holds up Zeus to be this great symbol of wisdom and paternal care, but in actual fact, he was He's a, a very deviant sort of person. And it just goes to show that Odin, for all his, he might, he, he has experience, but he doesn't, to a certain extent, have wisdom. And so much of the wisdom side came from his wife. And when yes. once she was gone, all that was left was his anger and frustration. Yeah, uh, to a degree, it feels almost like we were, uh, were robbed of a, an actual reconciliation scene with him and Thor because, of course, it's Loki. Yep. Oh, but at the same time, that scene is brilliant because it it flips everything. And the what's the actual line that Loki says in it? Were I were were I allowed? No, it was, it was something about, it were, uh, if I was allowed to, I would always say, or I'd also say I'd be proud of my son. Yeah. That completely blew me away though, because the reveal at the end, mm. it suddenly hit me what Loki is actually saying there. That's what he wanted Odin to say yeah. to him. Yeah. And it's almost like even in his manipulation, even in his lie at that point, he's giving Thor something that he thinks Thor would want because he knows if it was him in that position, he would want it. I mean, also, also the scene where he's the one who goes to tell Odin that he's dead, essentially. You can sort of infer that he didn't quite get the reaction that he wanted out of that. Yeah, and he sort of found a body. Was it Thor? No, it wasn't Thor. And because even in Thor one, Loki has quite a connection to Thor. Even even throughout the times where he's always felt in his shadow and everything, they are brothers at the end of it. And he felt that he, no matter on what level, he should give Thor what he wanted at some point. I think you're right there. The, the connection between the two of them is far stronger than than any connection Loki has with the rest of Asgard, or, or with particularly with Odin. Um, and obviously, his relationship with uh, with Frigga, we see the um, the upshot of that in his reaction to her death. But Thor does actually seem to mean something to him. The point where he says, "I didn't do it for him," um, implicit that he did it for Thor. It seemed like he might actually have been dying at that point and wasn't sure whether he was or not and then when it turned out he wasn't he then improvised as he I believe he does all the time yeah. let's go of the branch jumps to the next one yeah I mean even there he told what 
essentially he said what Thor would want to hear at that point that he was sorry and that he regretted everything I don't think he knows how to be genuine genuine yeah, yeah. No. at that point where Fr- Freya asks him does that mean I'm not your mother and he says no in a sort of way to try and convince himself as well yeah it, it, no, I was just going to say, although ostensibly at that point he's talking about the illusion, I think, yeah, yeah he's he is possibly, you know, trying to convince himself on some level to detach from the the attachments that he has in this world. Also, I think at that point that's him realising that if he's to follow that logic, then therefore his mother wouldn't be his mother. Yeah. I think he's that sort of a, a, a sadness comes over him at that sort of oh no it's he's never really thought about it that way it's yeah. always been Odin's no longer my father Thor's no longer my brother but it's never been Frey's no longer my mother until actually having to confront that issue uh, quick question mm. was Freya was the trigger actually Freya is a uh, no no it's 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 a derivative of that is uh, is that right Sharon um is that it's a Celtic in inter- no 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 they're, they're both Norse um, in some interpretations Freya and Frigga are the same person mm-hmm. uh, oh. Odin's wife um, and they they kind of between them epitomise um, the the goddess of love and caring as Aphrodite did in the Greek pantheon um, but in some interpretations they are divided in that Freya is the goddess of love and Frigga is the goddess of lust um the only reason I was saying Freya is because my cousin Freya, I just saw it today. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> they I can't be looking at you right now. I'll mess up on the Thor 2 show. <laughs> yeah, technically be interpreted as the same person. I have to admit, I was a bit surprised that they didn't go with Freya because it's a name that's less loaded with... <coughs> sexual intention. British. Yeah. Um. <laughs> American as well. They have Frigging in America. Does it mean the same thing? Yes. Okay. Back to my original question. Americans, write in and tell us what frigging means. (laughs) (laughs) On the forum. Well, I was just thinking, you know, maybe it was just an extension of if they thought they could get away with Quim, they thought they might as well try it. Quim. (laughs) Okay, back to my original question. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Jerry. The illusion of Frigga speaking to Loki at the time, was it her illusion or Loki's illusion? I think that was hers. Yeah. Because mm. I think that was part of the, the making the point that she can create those illusions too. Okay, I was right. As if it was the other way around, it could speak so much to the way Loki views himself. Mm. Yeah. Well, his his identity gets ripped apart, if you think about it, because if he has to, if he decides that Odin is no longer his father or was never his father, um, the, the only father that he's, you know, his true father that he's aware of is now dead and, and at his hand, I believe. Yes. Um, he's... Trying like disintegrates to disintegrates him. Yeah, he's trying to push Thor away um, as his his brother, um, and then if he has to acknowledge that uh, that Frigga is no longer his mother either, who is he? Who does that mean he is? I mean the the um, uh, the shape shifting element of of Loki. It was pretty subtle, but 
am I right in thinking that the point when he effectively died, the illusion of him looking like an Asgardian actually faded a little? I'd need hmm. to see the Blu-ray for that one. But it, it, it almost... I could be wrong. I could have misinterpreted this, but as, the, as it panned back and he was Did lying around, it looked like he basically got smaller, more withered, and more blue. I think they probably could have just made him go completely blue, but it might have confused people who hadn't seen the original Thor. Mm. But that was what made me think, albeit briefly, that he was actually dead. Yeah. Then it was most likely some very careful, subtle post. But like I said, it just seemed like that looking back, we could have gone, okay, that was a huge moment in the Marvel Universe, but it's just such a damn shame because he clearly loves the character that much and there was so much more that Loki could have done. And I'm so happy that it all sort of tied up in the end to this Machiavellian, albeit most likely improvised plan. question is still uh, out there as to whether... Um, what's the name of that gambit that uh, he may or may not have played in the Avengers where he meant to lose? The question is still on the table as to whether he meant to lose at the end of Avengers. That's all I'll say. <clears throat> Two more things before we go. Three more things before we go. Richard, played by Chris O'Dowd. Brilliant. Lovely. Love to see him. He was pretty much playing the same character he was in Bridesmaids. And uh, again, much like uh, Idris Elba, improves everything he's in. <laughs> it's pretty much the same character he played in the IT crowd as well. No. He just does a bit. Roy is a lot more exaggerated. <laughs> Um, and a lot more unhygienic. Yeah. Best <laughs> point. Roy does not eat out in fancy restaurants. It's just him in all these. Um, second bit. <sighs> there was a scene when uh, they were staring out over a lake in Asgard, um, Jane and Thor, and she's in this gorgeous dress, and Thor's just sort of standing there next to her, and they're sort of leaning on a balcony. I was like, Thor, if you start talking about sand and how it gets everywhere, and she sort of goes, oh, I just want to kiss you right now, then the, this film and I are going to have words. <laughs> Fortunately, <clears throat> Chris Hemsworth is sick. Significantly better of an actor. It's Odin! He's holding me back! <laughs> <laughs> Significantly better than Hayden Christensen. Um, I'll say. I don't think we've actually... Yeah, there's all the, also that as well. There's more to him. <clears throat> uh, also, I, I don't think we've really talked about Darcy that much, but again, all of the uh, the Earthbound scenes... I think we've hardly talked about the Earth stuff and all of the... Um, the bit when they were in the warehousey type area and they're experimenting with the portals reminded me of the Animatrix segment, simply called Beyond, where that, those kids find what they think is a haunted house and it's a glitch in the Matrix. And they're just messing around with with physics. That was exactly what I thought of. Yeah, it was quite a I, joyful moment. I really enjoyed the character of Ian throughout this. <laughs> he actually throws the keys in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just his expression on his face, just that wide grin of waiting for it to come back, says, did you just throw the keys in there? Give me your shoe. <laughs> <laughs> That's Why are there so many thing. shoes here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a what? shoe motif running through. And it's, of course, Stan the Man Lee going, Can I have my shoe back? Typical. Jane. Sorry, I just needed to make sure you were real. It's been a very strange day. Oh, I am. Jane, what? Where were you? Where were you? I don't cannot see you. I was right here where you left me. I was waiting, and then I was crying, and then I went out looking for you. 
You said you were coming back. I know, I know, but the Bifrost was destroyed. The nine realms erupted into chaos. Wars were raging. Marauders were pillaging. I had to put an end to the slaughter. As excuses go, it's not terrible. But I saw you on TV. You were, you were in New York. Jane, I fought to protect you from the dangers of my world, but I was wrong. I was a fool. I believe that fate brought us together. And finally, um, this is maybe, maybe one of the worst bits of editing I have ever seen in a film. I still love the, the movie itself, but one thing really needed to be changed about the edit of this film. Anybody? The actual end. Oh, yeah. The post-credit sequence. Sharon, how many other people were still in the absolutely packed cinema when we saw that end bit at the end of the credits? Nobody but us. Nobody but us. The entire cinema. Everybody who paid to see that film didn't know that he ends up with Jane back on Earth. They didn't know. Because they left. Because they bloody left. So There's two post-credits. Yeah, of course there's two. They saw the Guardians of the Galaxy bit and everyone went, huh. Wonder what that was about. Then they buggered off. It should see, have been the other way round. Well, see, that's the thing Marvel have been doing, where the first one is sort of a setup for the next one. The second end end credit sequence is a little more of the current movie. Yeah, but you don't like. I I left the Avengers not knowing whether they ate shawarma or not <laughs> because well, that, that, that was that not that a big thing. That was yeah, not a big thing. This is a massive thing. <laughs> It's like the end of Titanic. Basically, at the end of the credits, Jack turns up. Old Jack goes, "Hey, Rose, how's it going? What? What the hell? Oh yeah, I was on the I was on the Carpathia as well. Didn't you know? Okay, I've spent my entire life. Ah, well, you know. Come on, give us a smooch. <laughs> That's the, the, the. They end up together, and no one knows except us. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> It's not spoilers. It's not spoilers. It's spoiled it, not showing them that. So, Wait. yeah, um, I, I hope for the Blu-ray of this that they switch the mid and end credit sequence. Oh, I suppose it doesn't really matter now, because so if you got it on Blu-ray, to it. then, yeah, people can say, just watch the end bit. And, like, everyone who's got the Blu-ray or DVD already can just go and watch the end bit. But in the cinema, you can't rewind it. You can't be in the car park and, you know, I'm fairly certain we missed something. <laughs> Or Did like, we just spoil a film that people have seen? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. So yeah, if, if you walked out before the very, very end, what are you doing? It's been seven films so far where they put something at the very, very end. And yet, for some reason, not one person in our audience suspected that might be the case, except for us. Wasn't Avengers the only one with that very, very end shawarma thing? No. Nick Fury at the end of the uh, f- uh, first one. Uh, Thor at the end of uh, Iron Man 2. The Thor hammer. Yeah, but those are just like one post-credit thing. Yeah. Avengers was the only one with two post-credit things. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. So uh, once everybody saw the first one, they thought it was only an Avengers sort of comedy gambit that they decided to do that. Gotcha. In well, look, no, clearly no one thought that they would actually put something so key to the plot at the end. Well, actually, in, didn't the UK not get the shawarma thing at the end of... I don't know, we had to go because Lyra was playing up. No, that's, <laughs> I don't... It was only in the US that got the shawarma scene. Interesting. They also got a bit of extra spear in their uh, Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> Just the tip. <laughs> 
the actual end. Well, that, that was it. Just that the, they end up together, and it's a lovely kind of unexpected ending. And uh, I was really pleased with that. Uh, there was a, a quite amusing moment before that, before the audience left, during the uh, the setup for the Guardians of the Galaxy scene, uh, when the guy behind us muttered, "I don't know who that is," and Sharon sort of said, "Well, if you shush for a moment, you might find out." And I, I sort of like when they had all left. I was like, "Was that really necessary?" We're like, like thirty more seconds, and it was going to be over. And she, and you said he was talking the entire movie, and he is so lucky I couldn't hear him because I would have turned around and said, "Shut your fucking mouth! It this is not so your living room." It wasn't so much the fact that he was talking because he was he was sort of muttering under his breath and he was obviously a general Marvel fan and that's fine, I can get with the enthusiasm. It was the fact that throughout the scene on the Dark Planet, every time anything happened with Loki, he was muttering, oh, that's that clearly real. not real, that's, that's an illusion. illusion, he's not really dead. He couldn't have cut his hand off for, for real. Oh, uh, you got one of those. Yes. It was like when we were watching Goblet of Fire, I must have mentioned this one before, some kid said way too loudly when uh, they were in Mad-Eye Moody's study and that the uh, trunk was shaking, Is that where the real Moody is? (sighs) And then like... The best one was the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He's not really dead! That's the crucial scene. I mean, she was obviously trying to reassure her little sister who was devastated. whisper it. That Aslan appeared to be dead. whisper it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and I know spoilers, but frankly, if you don't know the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Sodger. Oh, come on, East Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Statute of Limitations is thoroughly Thor, up on that if one. If you've seen Thor, you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> if you know the Bible, you know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Nice. Uh, while, while Lara was watching The Little Vampire today... Um, they got attacked by humans with pitchforks, torches, and crucifixes. And Lyra said very solemnly, they don't like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, they're using his symbol to bash somebody's head in. Well, she meant the vampires because they were going, ah. This is a code of conduct on how people should and shouldn't behave in the cinema. So far, it's been available as a poster. Is it available in any other way, Simon? Well, clearly, the thing that it hasn't had so far... Is moving pictures. Have we rectified that? Well, I think we might have done. Let's take a look. No eating of anything harder than a soft roll with no filling. No one wants to hear you crunch, chew, or masticate in any way. Nachos cause special offence and are of the devil. No slurping of drinks. You've already drunk a five-litre flagon of pop. You really don't need the melting ice, too. You are not six years old. <laughs> No rustling of super high-density Russell-O-Matic extra Russell bags. No foraging of any kind. If you're going to need it during the film, get it out beforehand. No irresponsible parenting. Your five-year-old does not want to come to see the latest 12A certificate. You are using the cinema as a babysitter. Your child's moaning, whinging and crying is your fault and a profound annoyance to everyone else. Your interrupted sleep caused by your child's nightmares are also your fault and serves you right. No hobbies. This includes knitting, drug dealing, model aeroplane assembly, fighting, having sex, and updating Facebook. Blah, 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 blah. No talking. You're in a cinema. You've come here to watch, not to discuss, or engage, or participate, or explain, or whatever. More importantly, no one in the cinema has paid £8.50 to hear your director's commentary on the movie. Just sit down and shut up. No mobile phone usage. 
at all. Not even on flight mode. This isn't an aeroplane, it's a cinema. Even if you're not yapping, you're still creating light pollution. Put your thumbs away. NB includes Blackberries, Palm Pilots, iPads, whatever. No kicking of seats. The area of floor directly in front of your seat is yours and is there to put your legs in. The back of the seat in front of you belongs to someone else. Do not touch, interfere with, or otherwise invade their space with your feet, knees, or other bodily appendages. No arriving late. Like Woody Allen in Annie Hall, you're supposed to watch movies from the very beginning to the very end. If you turn up late, tough. Go see something else. The sorrow and the pity, perhaps. No shoe removal. You are not in your own front room, nor are you in Japan. Unless you are, in which case, carry on. A cinema is a public space. Keep your bodily odours to yourself. All the above rules apply to all movies at all times. Enjoy. What do you think? It's all right. Would have been better in 3D. I had my first experience of actually enjoying someone talking in the cinema oh, yeah? uh, yesterday. Oh, what happened? Um, going to watch Gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman sat just to the left of me was kind of so wrapped up in it she was going oh my god no like just like noises and movements and there was quite a lot of that all over and i found myself like in weird contorted positions where i was kind of clutching like my clothes and my shoulder just because i was like tense so she was holding uh, the tension for you yeah it was actually <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's only who does that uh, but once or twice it, it slightly broke it because she went oh no you can catch it go on <laughs> <laughs> literally talking to this film <laughs> go on Sandra Bullock you can do it <laughs> I think I mentioned during the Avengers show that one kid who heightened uh, an action sequence where just after Thor you want me to put the hammer down slammed it down on Captain America's shield big boom silence and some kid goes Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, could have would have preferred that kid behind us to this toss pop who was clearly annoying Sharon the whole time. But uh, no, I uh, after I found out that he'd been talking, I was like, you know what? I thoroughly back you up on your reprimanding of him, and I think everyone should do that because we have to educate these buffoons. It's not your living room, folks. It's the cinema. This yeah, is where my this. teacher voice comes from, though. People have mentioned my teacher voice before. It comes from telling people off in cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> there were some kids jabbering down the front, but then I think it was actually their dad or mum just went, Will you shush? <laughs> I was like, thank you for doing that, because I would have bloody well had to. See, I have relatively good cinema experiences, but I also go to the very first showing of the day, yeah, when barely anybody's going to be there. <laughs> Let's just wrap it up now, shall we? Uh, are you guys looking forward to Captain America: The Winter Soldier? Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen any trailers. Same thing I did for the. No, it's, oh, you're it's holding like for all for everything for things that I really want to see or I know I'm going to see or buy. I don't watch trailers for. Oh my god! So you haven't seen a bit with Black Panther? Nope. <laughs> He's not in it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> is I know. <laughs> but there, there is a three. <laughs> but, no, it you is can't a... see, but Alex is now nodding. And then Somehow, Idris Elba becomes Black Panther. As well. <laughs> oh, yes. And Heimdall in the same movie. He gets tired of being the guardian of the Bifrost. He decides, you know what? Thor likes Earth so much, I'm going to try, you yeah. know, staying there. They're retconning the character. Or 
He's built up so much annual leave, he's finally got to take it off. <laughs> you know this, but I... <laughs> I have a twin on Earth. <laughs> no, they just Greetings, decided, my brother. You know what? This film would be better with 200% more Idris Elba. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Ant-Man, played by Chris O'Dowd. <laughs> oh, God, no. A Actually, I'd really Chris like O'Dowd. that. If they were doing an Ant... I mean, since it's Edgar Wright directing, that would be a really good combination. Jane Foster and Ant-Man almost dated. See, now that I've said that, I want that to be the case. Uh, people are saying Paul Rudd. He'd actually be really good as well, if it's going to be a comedy. Anyway, and the last thing we're going to talk about, because uh, by the time we talk about it next, it'll be way closer to the time, uh, is the possibility that The Amazing Spider-Man 2 may tie that film and its predecessor in with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Indeed. Which would be interesting. No, hang on, can't say interesting. Hang on, I've got some, uh, I've got some paperwork to go with this one. What it's with not... the fact that you can't say interesting, you signed a contract. <laughs> <laughs> Is it as complicated as the licensing agreement between Quicksilver with Fox and Marvel? It's not as complicated as the Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch thing, but my god, we're going to have too much Quicksilver next year, aren't we? Can you uh, have too much Quicksilver? Yes. Uh, many Victorians found this out to their chagrin. <laughs> it's no secret that The Amazing Spider-Man has been, uh, this is from uh, comicbookmovie.com, has been almost connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe when Disney, Marvel Studios and Sony Pictures agreed to include Oscorp Tower as an Easter egg in the Avengers. Unfortunately, timing constraints forced the studios to scrap the idea. Since then, the Amazing Spider-Man producer Avi Arad and Mal Tolmak has shown interest in continuing their relationship with Disney Marvel by incorporating Marvel Easter eggs into the Amazing Spider-Man sequel. Andrew Garfield has expressed interest in being in an Avengers sequel multiple times, and director Mark Webb wasn't too shy to admit that he wanted to acknowledge a larger universe in the Blu-ray and DVD commentary of the film. Mark Webb's latest tweet in response to Sean O'Connor's tweet that Mark Webb is planning to make a massive Spider-Man universe on film rather cryptically could foreshadow Spider-Man debuting in Marvel's expanded universe. Sean O'Connell said, Mark Webb isn't making a sequel, he's mapping out a massive Spider-Man universe. And Mark Webb replied, Think bigger. How much more straightforward can that be some recent transactions between Disney Marvel and Sony made fans spider senses tingle of course Disney bought the merchandise rights to the Spider-Man franchise and it's widely speculated that part of the deal allows them to the use of Spider-Man in some form a character in Marvel Studios short film item 47 can be seen wearing an Empire State University t-shirt ESU's film rights are owned by Columbia Pictures and Sony and ESU should be familiar to Spidey fans as the college Peter Parker attends a deleted scene from The Amazing Spider-Man shows Dr. Kirk Connors mentioned ESU, and it is rumoured the Amazing Spider-Man 2 may feature the school. Even more tantalising, Target's recent commercial featuring Iron Man and Spider-Man was, for lack of a better word, odd. Even more tantalising, I have a picture right here in front of me. I'm just going to uh, link this to you guys, in case you haven't seen it today. If you just uh, scroll down to the second post. Of a Mr. Andrew Garfield clutching a short stack of Avengers comics one of which has Thanos on it. It could just be that he saw the Avengers and went, oh, dude, I've got to know who this Thanos is. Uh, and, no, he... Andrew Garfield's a comic book fan. Yeah. So. In which case, uh, there seems to be rather a lot of comics for him to read. 
I'm going to go ahead and say that with uh, most likely Iron Man's diminished role, specifically in action sequences in the upcoming Avengers films, and in it, most likely he will be reduced to consultancy status or be puppeteering Iron Man suits. We don't know. Possibly. Um, they're going to need some more muscle on the field and a major Marvel player to up the clout of Avengers 2. So I'm going to go ahead and say Spider-Man, what, 50% likelihood? Slightly higher, slightly lower? If they get Probably. Spider-Man in, I could quite easily see a Civil War storyline turning up sooner or later. Ooh, that would be good. Well, well, we'd have to make Tony not a dick, which would be hard. <laughs> Sorry, hang on. We'd have to make Tony not a dick, which would be somewhat tricky. Also, Hugh Jackman has expressed interest that he'd love for Wolverine to be part of the Avengers again. <gasps> they should actually get the full Avenger team. Yeah, the new Avengers. Now, I've got, I've got something there. I think that that movie might make all the monies. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, financial reports today. Oh, the, 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 the Avengers world. three made everything. If they tried to write the box office take, they ran out of numbers. Hollywood had to give people money so that they could keep seeing this film. (laughs) Something that would make me and probably Josh very happy, maybe just only us two, Mm -hmm. because they're bringing Thanos into it and the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see the Silver Surfer. Oh yeah, no, so would I. Uh, I don't know whether he is in the blanket Fantastic Four agreement. Yeah, he was. He was. Oh, bollocks. Yes. Yeah. Okay, it would appear that Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, Galactus, X-Men are all owned by Fox. That's something that annoys me, the fact that Galactus and Silver Surfer are tied up with Fantastic Four. But uh, news has emerged uh, in the past few days of Netflix signing up four brand new Marvel shows, which will run... Yeah, in a similar parallel universe and then unite for one sort of team-up show. I don't know whether that'll actually be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I bloody hope it will. But that's what? Jessica Jones, Daredevil, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist. Is that right? Yeah. And then, uh, what would they be? The Defenders when they team up? I believe so. Let me just check who the Defenders are. By the way, for the viewers, if you want to know how convoluted and difficult these things are, try to look in the agreement with Marvel and Fox and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch and what they can do, what they can't do, whether they can say he's a mutant or not, whether they can say he's Magneto's son or not, whether they can use his name or not. I would imagine, what, Pietro Maximoff they won't be able to use, or call him a mutant, or say he's Magneto's son, but he will be Quicksilver. Yeah. Oi... At that stage, what do you got there? A speedster. <laughs> a guy with a lightning yeah. flash on his shirt. Okay, the Defenders are, are, are have been in the past. Ant-Man, Black Cat, Doctor Strange, Iron Fist, Namor, Red She-Hulk, and Silver Surfer. Uh, but originally it was basically uh, Namor, Hulk, and Doctor Strange. In fact, there was actually a Justice League episode with Solomon Grundy, Aquaman, and Doctor Fate referencing the Defenders. Nice. But they've always been somewhat of a lame, like, C-list super team. I think Silver Surfer was in there for a while. How the hell can you put Silver Surfer in a super team? He can do anything! 
Look, why don't you let me take over? I'm clearly the best pilot. Is that right? Well, out of the two of us, which one can actually fly? Now they're following us. Now they're firing at us. Yeah, thank you for the commentary, Loki. It's not at all distracting. Well done. You just decapitated your grandfather. The future is really bright in terms of crossovers because Avengers has shown this formula really does work. The possibilities are opening and opening up, and I am really happy to be a Marvel fan right now. Yup. And we will be doing a whole series of Gonzo podcasts on the Spider-Man films and the X-Men films in the run-up to the release of Amazing Spider-Man 2 and X-Men Days of Future Past. Okay, that will do for us tonight, I think, on uh, Thor The Dark World. Um, for those of you who haven't yet seen Thor The Dark World, sorry for spoiling absolutely everything. Um, you should know better. Yeah, you should know by now. Yeah, for, for those of you who did see Thor The Dark World, sorry we couldn't be harder on it for those who hated it. And sorry we couldn't be more effusive for those who loved it. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, for me, um, it's actually lo- at the lower end of the, all, you know, the complete list of eight films so far. Um, with Iron Man 3 being at the very bottom. But that's mainly down to the fact that, and you made this clear yesterday when I forced you to put them in order, Sharon, mm-hmm. um, they are consistently good across the board. And the bits that are good in all of them are all really good. And it just comes down to when you're putting them in order, which has the highest amount of scenes, which is just all right. None of them are really bad so far, like Punisher bad, like X-Men 3 bad. Original Hulk bad. There are bits of original Hulk I quite like, but like nothing as bad as say Electra. Jerome's uh, got a good driver. point there, though, because one of the things that I said about it about the films when I was putting them in order was it basically comes down to which of the action scenes bore me the least. Um, because the characterization through all of them is consistent and consistently good and it it may not necessarily be hugely developmental but all of the conversations seem um, they fit and a lot of them are completely vibrant depending on the quality of the actors Mm. Um, but the original Ang Lee Hulk is one of the Marvel films that I would say there's characterization in there that I really don't like Yeah, nice, yeah Anything to do with um, his bloody father? I was. Yeah, what's his name? Nick Nolte. Oh, no. oh Nick. Oh, we're going to do a Gonzo on Hulk at some point. Yay! Because uh, it's an important film. Because that was the first time we'd ever actually seen a proper live-action Hulk that wasn't just Lou Ferrino. Yeah. But that said, I do quite like the fact that the way The Incredible Hulk was done, mm. it doesn't completely deny the existence of Ang Lee's Hulk. Yeah. It kind of, you have that little recap, and it's like, all of that stuff can have happened, or not. It's entirely up to you. Or, or did happen in a different world, but happened... No, in all seriousness, when you think about Ang Lee's Hulk, the, there would have been similarities between the way he and Betty uh, related, and there would have been similarities with how Thunderbolt Ross came after him, but all that shit about his father, that exists on a completely different planet. In a completely different world called the Ang Lee universe. A pocket <laughs> universe best left forgotten. Yeah, Earth Earth two and a bit. <laughs> Apparently was it is it Earth one nine 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 is the cinematic universe. 
I believe so. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. They actually have official cano- canonical names for the universes. Like people six, are keeping six. Yeah, people are keeping track of this stuff. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> uh, there's going to be a crisis point at some point in Marvel, and all will be combined. So yeah, more superhero shows most definitely coming because uh, we love the mythology of the heroes and uh, going back to the first thing I said as I uh, finished Avengers of uh, Lord of the Rings then Avengers that is all it seemed like a big exaggeration at the time uh, but I stick by it principally because these films are crafting a, a world as detailed as Tolkien's Middle Earth something literary fans may snort at but um, we're talking about a mythology that I've grown up with I've had Marvel around since I was so young I couldn't speak I've had the Hulk and Spider-Man in my life since transfers were still popular (laughs) what's transfers? (laughs) what's transfers? yeah (laughs) sorry how old are you Jerome? 24 exactly right transfers <laughs> and Dave um are they like fake tattoos or am I getting that mixed no, up no 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 transfers are like are like like fake tattoos but you sort of scribble on them with a pencil and then they come off on your um book oh or desk or something oh, oh I did De- know the name more like them. decals but without the water <laughs> but yeah they were huge in the 80s still and then now they aren't so that just gives you an idea it crosses generational gaps how long this mythology has been part of my life so seeing it fully realised in the Avengers was huge and still being in the middle of it and being swept up in the river that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it gushes along towards God knows how much potential could be great could be terrible from Phase 2 has not been on a par with Phase 1 principally because they haven't been able to characterize with the same impact of the origins yet. But I have high, high hopes for uh, Winter Soldier because Steve will finally come into his own in this one. And my God, Avengers 2. So yeah, can't wait. We shall see you next time for that. Thank you very, very much to my guests, David Merritt, staff writer for Gonzo Planet. Uh, Thank you. Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. No worries. And Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Thank you very much for letting me speak. Next week, I'll be talking about my book with a preview of the audiobook. We'll see you for that. And Avengers Assemble. What happened with... Okay, so Who's creaking in the background? Sorry, that's me. There we go. <laughs> Put the monster away. Right. It's, done. it's finished. Oh, let me speak! <laughs> <laughs> that's going in the outtakes. You wonder why I don't finish my sentences. Okay, yeah. something about Jane and stuff coming out of her. Let's <laughs> go! in post-production of a movie called Thor The Dark World right now, which is...
humanity. Look how far you've fallen. Lining up in the sweltering heat for hours. Huddling together in the dark. Like beasts. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Stand back, you mewling quim. <laughs> The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for a place in this chamber. In this meager palace of Midgard. The arena they call Hall H. Where are your Avengers now? Say my name. Loki. Say my name. Loki. Say my name. Loki. Say my name. Loki.